It's episode two of Monday Warfare, The Battles Within. I'm your host, Ray Russell, and Steve Ekstat is back along with me again this week as we continue to get our feet wet in the Monday Night War here, Steve. Yeah, plodding along here. Second episode, I'm, I'm ready to get into it. Uh, as part of episode one, we got the debut, Monday Nitro, which aired unopposed, and then, of course, the first head-to-head meeting between Raw and Nitro followed that. This week, uh, we'll see more head-to-head action. In fact, it's the first ever live head-to-head as the WWF airs its first live episode of Raw up against Nitro on the week of the 25th of September. And before we get going this week, with another two weeks of the Monday Night War, there seems to be a little confusion with some listeners and fans in general about how ratings and shares and things of that nature work, or at least how to read them or what they mean. Steve, I think you even mentioned in passing to me before that you weren't even 100% entirely sure how to decipher ratings and shares and all that good stuff. I don't know if you've read up on it since then or whatever. So what I wanted to do this week uh, before we get going and before we get too deep into the war itself is try and break down in layman's terms what a rating and what a share is for everyone. I felt this was important given how much we'll be actually talking about ratings as we move along. And I actually didn't understand shares myself until looking all that good stuff up several years back. So let's see if I can break it down to, to be better understood for everyone. And even if you guys forget, At least we'll always have this episode as a reference tool for you to go back to, okay? So, let me try here. Let's talk about ratings here for a minute. Uh, A TV show's ratings refers to the number of households who tuned in to watch the content. The number you see for a rating is a percentage of the entire population of everyone who has a television. So, if, for example, let's say 10 million TVs tune in to view Monday Nitro this week, and there's 100 million households... Uh, then that episode of Nitro earned a rating of 10%. In other words, the show reached roughly one-tenth of all U.S. homes. Basically, a rating is the number of viewers, in a percentage form, of those who could have potentially watched the program. So if Nitro does a 2.5, that is 2.5% of the people in the world that basically have the TV and the capability of watching Nitro. That's That's what a rating is. Now, a share is similar to a rating... But one big difference is a share is expressed as a percentage of the audience that was actually watching TV at the time. So if you stick with me here with the Nitro scenario from before, if there are 100 million households watching television on that particular Monday night, then the show's 10 million viewers qualifies it for a 10% share. That means the show reached 10% of all TV watchers during its broadcast. The share is basically the number of viewers watching TV at any given time. So basically, to break it down, ratings are a percentage of everyone who has a capability of watching TV, and a share is a percentage of the actual amount of people who were actually watching TV at that time. So what that means for last week's Raw Nitro was they did a combined seven share, which means 7% of America who was watching TV last Monday night had it on wrestling, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. That's crazy to think about today, uh, getting a 7% share of people that's watching TV. I know the world's different and TV's completely different from 95 to 2020. There's a lot more, a lot more factors now than what there was then, but that, yeah, it's still crazy to think about 7% of the viewing audience was watching wrestling at one point and it gets even bigger going forward. So just incredible. Yeah. And if any of you guys are still confused about what a rating is and what a share is, Google it. That's what I did. Just Google it, and you guys go figure it out for yourselves. I did the best I could there. It's hard to explain in words, but it's pretty simple once you 
just sit down and kind of read it and figure it out. Now, as we move into the September 18th week, that's what we're doing right now, Nitro and Raw for September 18th. It should be noted that while Monday Nitro airs on Monday night, Monday Night Raw this week doesn't air until Thursday, and it is also taped. Um, it's probably a good idea that we go back here, too, for Nitro, because we're going to kick off with Nitro, if that's okay with you, Steve. We're doing September 18th, but the Fall Brawl pay-per-view fell on the 17th, the night prior. And since this is Monday Warfare and not The Grenade, we won't go deep into details here, but it's important to cover them to keep you guys updated as to what is happening and why in the world of WCW. And we'll be doing the same for WWF pay-per-views as well. So we'll kind of do quickie results for the pay-per-views just so you guys are in the loop of what's going on when we, when we go over these Nitros and Raw shows here, Steve. Sound good to you? Sounds good to me, man. All right. So like I said, this isn't the grenade, guys. So we're just skimming through these results. We're not, we're not going in depth or giving our opinions or anything right now. And we're going to save that for whenever we actually tackle the, the entire year. But um, quickie results here from Fall Brawl the night before, Sunday night, September 17th. Matches live on the main event pre-show, which was always cool. Saw Big Bubba Rogers over Barry Houston. Disco Inferno over Joey Maggs. Eddie Guerrero made what I can remember was his TV debut for WCW, not counting his 89 match with Funk. Uh, the best I can remember, this was his debut here in 95. Uh, as he does a no decision, no decision match with Alex Wright after Eddie takes a bump to the floor and sells a knee injury. And I remember watching that live, and it was really weird. Watching It almost felt real. Why, why else would you have a guy debut and sell a knee injury and take a count out or a no contest in his debut? It was really weird. Anyways, like I said, I'm not going to dwell on anything right now. Eddie's not really full-time yet on TV. so Apparently, these new guys just can't beat Alex Wright because we saw Sabu. <laughs> they did the reverse decision there. Eddie Guerrero can't get a fair shake here. He has to sell a, a foot fake leg injury to uh, finish up the match here with Alex Wright. So uh, Alex Wright seems to be untouchable at this point for some reason. Also, it should be noted that the American males defeated the nasty boys on the pre-show after Dick Slater interfered and cost knobs the loss. And the reason they did that was the winner of this males and nasty boys match was supposed to fight, face the tag team champions, which was supposed to be Slater and bunkhouse buck. So I guess basically the story is, is Slater and bunkhouse buck didn't want to have to wrestle the nasty boys. They'd rather take on the pretty boy American males. And so they, they helped the American males get the win there. I guess that was the story on the pre-show. We fast forward into the pay-per-view. We kick things off with a, a, a U.S. title number one contender match. Winner gets to meet, meet Sting for the U.S. title in a future show. Uh, it's Johnny B. Bad over Flying Brian. Match goes 30 minutes. I believe it was 20 minutes. I think there's like two five-minute uh, additional time periods added or something along those lines. But I know the match goes about 30 minutes. And... Basically, Johnny B. Bad gets the win over Pillman there, and he's going to get a future shot at Sting. We have uh, Craig Pittman over Cobra in a minute and 22 seconds. Pittman entered by repelling into the ring behind Cobra. Ranger Ross did it first. Sorry, Craig. But uh, basically, Pittman repelled in behind Cobra, attacked him from behind, applied the code red, the cross-arm breaker, got the win there. We are going to see Paul Underf here on this Nitro, so it was very important for me to point out that Paul Underf debuts his new persona. He had been losing. He would lost faith, faith in himself. He's... He's now Mr. Wonderful again, thanks to Gary Spivey and the Psychic Friends Network. I never understood the, what, a, what a psychic can do to elevate your personality, but he helps Wonderful regain his wonderfulness, if you will, in a, a vignette here on the pay-per-view. Uh, DDP defeats Renegade for the TV title. That was pretty much the end of Renegade's push with the Diamond Cutter, just over eight minutes. Harlem Heat beat Dick Slater and Bunkhouse Buck for the World Tag Team title, so Slater and Buck didn't even have to worry about facing the nasties. They lose the belts here on the pay-per-view. Match goes about 17 minutes. 
In a shocker, Arn Anderson defeats Ric Flair, his former best friend, former member of the Four Horsemen. Match goes about 22 and a half minutes. Brian Pillman shows up. Remember, Brian Pillman just lost a bat earlier on the show. Brian Pillman shows up and basically turns heel. Wax Flair with a big kick and allows Arn to deliver the DDT and pin Ric Flair, which was a huge deal at the time. And then, you know, the big one, War Games, Hulk Hogan, Randy Savage, Sting, and Lex Luger over the Dungeon of Doom. That's Shark, Kamala, Zodiac, and Ming. And a uh, stupid finish, Steve. Have you have, do you remember the finish of this match? Uh, I can't recall off the top of my head. No, I've seen it a hundred times, but I can't remember it. So the match goes about nineteen minutes. That's nineteen minutes of cartoon hokey garbage because you're you're in there with the Dungeon of Doom. And uh, the finish is Hulk Hogan applies a camel clutch on his good buddy, the booty 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 Zodiac man here. And Zodiac's gimmick was what? Yes, no, yes, no. So he has him in the camel clutch, and the referee's asking him if he gives, and even the finish is a cartoon because the Zodiac's sitting there, yes, no, yes, no, yes, 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 and he submits without even actually trying to submit. So that's how Team Hogan wins War Games. So War Games has come a long way in the wrong way since 1987 here. <laughs> yeah, to say the least, this was a terrible main event. It was a decent show, some, of the, some good matches underneath, but that main event is pretty terrible. And uh, basically the rules stated after the War Games match that if Hogan's team won, Hogan got five minutes with Kevin Sullivan in the inside the cage. They, that brawl goes about two and a half minutes before the Giant enters, and he chokes Hogan out and appears to snap his neck in epic Zeus fashion. Hogan sells it as such. He starts quivering around the ring in classic Hogan fashion. So uh, get those Oscars ready, people. Also during that match, it should be noted, because this is also important, Lex Luger, Dex, Randy Savage, remember they were on the same team. Luger pops Savage, but it appeared to be accidental. However, Randy Savage isn't buying that, and that'll tie into at least the next two, three weeks of TV, if not if, if not further ahead as well. And that's pretty much Fall Brawl in a nutshell. I tried to run through it as fast as I could, Steve. Sorry if I left you sitting there quiet for that, that long period of time. I was just trying to get through that so we can get to the good stuff. Yeah, there's really not much to discuss. <laughs> it was an okay show, but some, some like I said, good, some good matches underneath, but nothing you need to go out of your way to see. And here we are live. It's WCW Monday Nitro for September 18th, the day after Fall Brawl. They're in Johnson City, Tennessee, Freedom Hall. That's a Smoky Mountain wrestling territory, or at least it will be for another month or so before they shut down. We go into this episode of Nitro unopposed. Like I said, Raw won't air until Thursday. So this is the third edition of Nitro and the second of which is going unopposed. So you would expect perhaps maybe a decent rating here. We'll see what happens. Show kicks off with Bischoff, Bobby Heenan, Mongo, and that damn dog Pepe of his back. And Steve, what was the point of this? Like, what was the point of Pepe? Do you, do you, did you ever read up on this? Do you ever hear any stories about this? I have no idea why he brought Pepe, his dog. I never read up on it. I didn't see anything about it in the Observer either, so I have no clue why he brought it out there. Yeah, that, that was an early, early Mongo thing is bringing Pepe out week after week. Show kicks off with a promo. They they throw it to the back. You can hear an ambulance siren going on. Mean Gene Oakland standing in the, in the parking lot or, or somewhere out there, outside, around inside the building, and an ambulance is backing up, and out pops from the back Kevin Sullivan and the Giant. And the Giant professes he's the true immortal, not Hulk Hogan. And this specific time frame of the Giant is very cartoony here, like the rest of the Dungeon of Doom. His voice is different. It's more fake. His mannerisms are very cartoony. His laugh sounds like something from a villain on the Super Friends. Mean Gene says Giant's father would be disappointed if he were still alive. And they're basically referencing Andre because early on the the narrative was Andre was the Giant's father. Uh, The Giant replies, he says, if his father was alive today, he'd be right here with him supporting him against Hulk Hogan. 
So most of this, this Andre nonsense without actually naming his name at this point, because they had mentioned Andre early on, and it seems like they're trying to play the gimmick here without actually having to say Andre's name. No, nah, I never bought this Andre stuff. I know he showed up at the Bash, Bash 80, uh, 95, Bash at the Beach, threw his shirt at him and said, remember this, and that's kind of how he made his debut. And they were implying Andre from the get-go. This stuff doesn't work. We've seen it with Muda and the Kabuki. Just because some dude's tall and a giant doesn't mean he's automatically related to Andre. I never bought it. Even this as a just, kid, I was like, hey, there's no way. This just feels like a Hogan thing, too. Hogan wanted to tie everything together. And you can see from bringing in buddies that he had worked repeatedly in the WWF that he's just trying to familiarize everyone with everything he's doing here. He's trying to, this is WWF light uh, as far as the Hogan storylines and angles go. He's got all of his buddies from the WWF, everyone that he drew a couple bucks with that he knew would protect him and take care of him in the ring. Yeah, basically, that's I, I presume that's how we end up here with the Giant being the son of Andre, if you will. And promotions love bringing Big Show's dead father character into these storylines. I, I like Boss Man's a lot better. I found it a lot more humorous anyway. Oh, absolutely, especially the card. I'm sorry to hear your dad finally croaked. <laughs> I always get a chuckle out of that when he says uh, that. So, uh, yeah, just good stuff. Boss I, think, anyway. I think my favorite was uh, when they were riding on the uh, casket through a cemetery. And there was a real funeral going on at that point in time. <laughs> and Bruce Pritchard tells that story in one of his podcasts. But, man, could you imagine if you were at a funeral and you saw this shit going on through <laughs> through, through the, uh, the <laughs> cemetery? Oh, man. Oh, my God. I'd be so pissed. <laughs> well, if I, was, if I was the one in the casket, I'd be looking down laughing. But uh, I'm sure my family wouldn't appreciate it. But, man, that'd be brutal. Only Vince. Oh, shit. Do you hear that, Steve? I know that theme. Oh, I know that theme real well. That's the American Males. Absolutely the American Males. The clap. They're going to give you the clap. Everybody put their hands together for a little American Males. Come on, Steve. Sing it. You know the words. Everybody knows the words. Everybody loves this song. I'm gonna, I'm gonna sing a few bars. With you. I'm singing, I'm singing this song. This is a great song. If you see them coming, better run for cover, girls. You don't need a weekend lover. Uh, American males. If they wanna talk to you, you better take a listen, girls. You might need a weekend obstetrician. Ha-ha! American males. American males. Well, that's that's my version of the song anyway. Good old American males. Oh my god. Yeah, that was uh, that was good times, man. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to listen to that again later. Uh, <laughs> Give him the clap, Scotty. <laughs> <laughs> the clap. They never executed on oh, that in WCW. They they had they oh, didn't they even know what they had. ECW, though. Yeah, they didn't know what they had. Did on ECW. <laughs> oh my god, yeah, I, I still crack up to that all the time, man. I talk about it with my friends. Give him the clap, Scotty. That's so good. <laughs> I'm gonna give you the clap. Oh, the American. Oh my god. And speaking of the American males, uh, they're out to the ring. They're getting ready to have their the tag team champions here, I believe. But 
it winds up going to be the Blue Bloods, but I think Regal's not even actually in the building. I think he, I read maybe he's in Japan or injured. I'm not really sure where he's at right now. I think he is just in Japan or something along those lines, but they, they portray it like he's there and been beaten up backstage because the American Males are out first. They're getting ready to take on the Blue Bloods, and you see Bobby Eaton come staggering through the curtain, and he's getting beat on by Harlem Heat, so we presume Regal's already taken the beat down backstage, even though he's really not there. So, like I said, Slater and Buck had aided the males in a win the day before over the Nasties, and now the males are out here, presumably to take on the Blue Bloods, but instead, they wind up taking on the world tag team champion Harlem Heat. Harlem Heat are apparently fighting champions, even as heels, so they're to the ring and getting ready to defend their title. So we get a nice little quick match here. There's a Booker T axe hit kick here, a scissor kick, where he just kicks the fucking head. Off of Scotty, I mean, he kicks, kicks the freaking head right off of Scotty Riggs' face. If that's not a gif, I don't know what it is. Even Bagwell sells it like he's he's <laughs> feeling the. It was like I watched it like I went back and watched it like three times. It's it's almost like a video game. Riggs' head disappears when he takes the kick. It's insane. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Yeah. It is. Uh, it looks like he did a front flip, and then he just lands right on his <laughs> neck, and uh, it didn't look good at all. It and was then, rough. As the match progresses a few minutes, here comes Long Dong Silver down the ring, the human tripod himself, Robert Fuller in every inch of his manhood. And uh, Parker's out there. He woos Sherry. She loves him. She jumps into his arms. I think it kind of distracts uh, Booker T in the ring. The Harlem Heat are managed by Sherry, I should mention, for anyone who isn't aware. So Sherry's enamored with Parker. They start making out on the floor. Booker T gets a little sidetracked, but he does grab Bagwell. He goes to look for a pump handle slam and... Bagwell winds up floating over, landing on top. Booker T takes a bump down. Bagwell co- covers him, gets the one, two, three. And just like that, the American males are the new world tag team champions in just four minutes and 39 seconds. And I guess that proves anything can happen in the WCW. I guess. So to, to get this straight, on main event, they had a match with the Nasty Boys where the winner gets a tag team title shot, right? Yeah, but I'm not sure if that was for here on Nitro or not now that I'm looking at this. But uh, yeah, they're uh, supposed to get. A, if that was the case, then it didn't make any sense that they had to beat up the Blue Bloods to make this match happen. But here we are, and I don't know if you saw this during the middle of the match. And I remember reading about this in the Observer. Jim Cornette's girlfriend and a few of her friends were planted in the middle, of, like third row back, hard camera, and they had a sign that says "We want it raw," and uh, <laughs> they had some provocative signs, and basically. Uh, I think Dillinger had to go take him from him and kick right. him out or something. Um, and this caused the WCW to actually start confiscating signs before people even came into the uh, arena. They were watching them and looking at them because there's a lot of negative uh, Hogan signs and things like that uh, each week. So they took all that stuff out because of what Jim Cornette's uh, girl did here. Um, but I remember seeing that during this match and I, I thought it was hilarious. Yeah, not a bad match yet. Poor Riggs, he killed himself on that axe kick. Um, but that's really the only thing worth a damn in the entire match, to be honest with you. Yeah, that's for sure. Uh, not it would like I said, the whole match goes about four and a half minutes, and you get a world tag title change. So the Harlem Heat are champions for about twenty four hours here. Booker T, Stevie Ray, trying to keep it real. This is a case of when keeping it real goes wrong. The American Males are your new world tag team champions, or at least for for right now, anyway. And then up next, it's a promo. Mean Gene Okerlund with Ric Flair in the ring. Flair talks about Arn Anderson breaking the code, and it was okay to feud with each other. Basically, Flair's implying that it's okay if Flair and Arn feud. It's, it's all in the family. It's all within the four horsemen. Uh, but he says Arn broke that code 
when Brian Pillman got involved. And uh, basically, it's later tonight, the main event, it's going to be Ric Flair taking on Brian Pillman. And then Flair makes sure to mention that he also plans to get his hands on Arn Anderson and whip his ass. And um, they made sure to get that on TV. So now we, a little more edgy here on Nitro, at least early on before before the Turner suits come down on Bischoff and reprimand him about things like this. But they made sure to get the word ass on there, Steve, and, and Flair made sure to really make the punch the point on. Yes, he very much emphasized yeah. it indeed, yeah. He, he he did his classic promo, and then he's like, Arn, I'm going to kick your ass. And everybody's just assuming he's going to say butt. And, uh, no, he, he dropped the A word, and Bischoff's like, we can't be having that around here. They really sold it. It, it doesn't seem like a lot in – like right now, but in 95, when you, you didn't hear cuss words on any wrestling except here and there, somebody might say, hell, uh, I, I know, I remember like the house show from LA and WWF where Savage said he's going to kick Andre's ass for messing with Elizabeth. So ass was used as a word to really emphasize the anger and things like that for feuds. And you didn't hear it all the time. It definitely worked because you knew at that point they were pretty heated and they were going to get they wanted each other. So it's crazy. The little things that worked in 95 that can never work again. It's just, if you just think about it. Yeah. I mean, cursing back then was a huge deal. Even the, even a simple bleep of a curse where it was a huge deal. I remember boss man handcuffing Heenan to the guardrail and Rick Rude coming out and, and trying to rip it off. And all these bleep words were coming out of Rick Rude's mouth. And I was in awe sitting there like a 11 year old me or whatever. And I'm just sitting there in awe, like, Oh my God, what is he saying? And I remember, um, Steve Austin cutting a promo on Steamboat on an episode of Saturday Night, and there's just like this 30 second bleep. I mean, 30. It was like a, it felt like a 30 second. It was a very long bleep. And by the time he got done with that, I mean, I remember my brother and me still talk about this to this day. We'll reference it every once in a while when we're having conversations about things like that. You know, wonder still wonder what Steve Austin said to Steamboat that one time. It was just so long and and whatever. <laughs> But yeah. yeah, even he didn't win uh, in that retirement match with um, or loser leaves town between perfect and flair. Like when flair took the loss on, like, I think it was the third raw. Yeah. He just goes in and bleep, 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 bleep. And like, it's still, it's still memorable today. And uh, for me anyway, I remember watching that like, damn, he is pissed. <laughs> so yeah, cuss words meant a lot back then. And you just didn't hear it. They plugged Saturday night. On Saturday night this week, it's U.S. champion Sting taking on Steve Regal, Craig Pittman versus Cobra in a return match from Fall Brawl. I'm sure everyone's excited for that. I guess there's some kind of news on Dusty Rhodes. We'll get to that later. And Hulk Hogan will appear on Saturday night. I wonder how many more times we'll see him on Saturday night before he quits that show altogether. We move on. It's Johnny B. Bad, the man who just won the U.S. Heavyweight Championship number one contender match. The night before at Fall Brawl, he's taking on the new and improved Mr. Wonderful with the uh, six-inch mirror that he's looking at, and that's being generous. It might be a four-inch mirror that he's looking into as he's entering the ring to his new theme music. Eric Bischoff seems to hate this theme music, but it's just tremendous. And and for anyone who hasn't heard it, you need to go look up like Paul Endorf's 1995 theme music because it's, it's another level bad. It's so bad, it's awesome wonderful they call him mr wonderful something along those lines steve <laughs> you're right man it's so bad it's good it's how you get some heat without even doing nothing just play his damn music and people are gonna get pissed off that he's even coming out to the ring so i, um, I gotta be honest with you i can't believe paul go went for this this entire gimmick dealing with a psychic friends network and and uh 
coming out to this music and, and uh, basically admitting that, you know, he's lost a step because uh, the Pollendorf I know you weren't going to get any of that from him. So I don't know what they had to do to get him to agree to any of this. So very, very weird yeah, to see uh, Paul. What's in this funny situation. is uh, my friend went to dinner with him. He was at a comic con. They went to a dinner and he kept on telling me, he's like, man, you're Mr. Wonderful. And I'm assuming Orndorff thought my friend was a Mark and just, he's like, but eventually, he said it so many times, my Orndorff finally responded. He's like, you know what? I am Mr. Orndorff. I am Mr. Wonderful. And it almost, the way the story was told to me, it almost seems like Orndorff started working him and was using this gimmick to work him after a certain amount of time, uh, probably after a few drinks. He's like, you know what? I am Mr. Wonderful. I am Mr. Wonderful. <laughs> he just kept on saying it. And it was, <laughs> it's almost reminiscent of the Gary Spivey promo from Fall Brawl. Everything I've heard of Paul Orndorff, he's a legit tough guy. And for him to even entertain the idea of doing something like this, that I wonder what they had to do to convince him. Uh, match starts off. Bischoff points out that Johnny B. Bad had gotten nine stitches in his left eye from the match with Pillman at Fall Brawl here. So he's working with stitches in the eye. Pretty ballsy. Things can go yeah. wrong real, real fast. But uh, we, the match doesn't go long enough for too much to happen. There's a lot of blown spots in this match, honestly. Bad reverses a pile driver into a backdrop. Then Bad tries his own pile driver, and Orndorff reverses that into his own backdrop. And uh, Bad tries to turn that into a sunset flip, and Orndorff basically drops his knees down on top of Bad, hooks the legs, and gets the win. Paul Orndorff pins Johnny B. Bad in 6 minutes and 35 seconds, and I don't understand the logic in this. Didn't Bad just go 30 minutes the night before to prove himself and get a shot at Sting for the U.S. Heavyweight Championship? And here we have Paul Orndorff in a comedy gimmick of, to some degree, pinning Johnny B. Bad the next night on Nitro in six minutes. Did Orndorff really need this push? Yeah, this doesn't make any sense. I mean, if you're positioning Johnny B. Bad, and I kind of I know where the gimmick, I know where the uh, the angle goes there with the U.S. title match, but at the same time, you don't have a dude go 30 minutes and make your U.S. title seem really important by having somebody go through that to get a shot just to jive him out the next night. It makes absolutely yeah. no sense. Orndorff didn't need this at all. Yeah, and the only good thing about Orndorff beating bad here was that we got to hear his music a second time. <laughs> Wonderful, they call him Mr. Wonderful. What what tremendous music. We got American Males, this Mr. Wonderful music. Nitro's batting a thousand on theme musics here tonight. <laughs> Jimmy Hart. What they're not batting a thousand on are these lame-ass vignettes from random locations. And we're at the beach. You heard me right. We're at the beach, in the middle of the beach, on the sand. Randy Savage, for I have no no idea whatsoever, he's bench-pressing weights in the middle of the beach on the sand. And Kevin Sullivan runs out in a Baywatch jacket and it proceeds to attack Savage and, and beat him down with the barbells or whatever the hell they were doing there. And he beats him down into the sand. And Sullivan takes takes off while Ric Flair comes to make the save. This this whole thing's ludicrous. Savage is working out on the beach. Sullivan attacks him in a Baywatch outfit. Uh, uh, Ric Flair comes out to make the save. He keeps calling Kevin Sullivan devil. Devil, get out of here. Devil, what's wrong with you? Uh, Sullivan takes off. It was a really quick segment to further the Savage issues with Dungeon of Doom and things. But I don't know, man. It didn't work for me. It just seemed too cartoony for me with the whole beach I felt like this could have been done in a gym and it would have seemed a little more believable. Well, I, I don't know when this was recorded, the beach segment. I do know uh, when they was at Bash at the Beach for 95, they were on the beach and they did something with Baywatch. Right. And I think Bischoff even, 
I think uh, Bischoff prefaced this by saying this was from when they were filming Baywatch, and that may be why Sullivan had that Baywatch jacket on. So if you look at it from that context, that they was doing a movie or filming a TV show, uh, that makes sense, especially if it's Baywatch. But if it didn't have that context, uh, I'm with you 100%. Uh, this was hokey and cartoony. But I- I'm going to look at it from the fact that they was filming a TV show, so it makes it a little bit better for me. Oh, that's fine. I mean, yeah, I knew it was Baywatch related. The Baywatch girls were around Savage. It just seemed odd that he was yeah. working working out in the middle of the sand. Anybody? I don't know, man. It's just, It was silly it's, to me. It is hokey as hell, even for a TV show. It's WCW, and it's 1995, man. What the hell do you expect? And uh, we go back to the ring now, and it's Mean Gene Okerlund in the ring with Randy Savage, and uh, they address the Sullivan beatdown and Ric Flair making the save. Savage tells Flair thanks, but no thanks. He doesn't want his help in the future. He also, I found this funny. He had just teamed with Hogan the night before. He's still good friends with Hogan. He he was his partner last night in the big war games match. And Savage says he doesn't know where Hogan is right now. If he's in the hospital, if he's at home. So he's not, he doesn't even check up on his buddy. Why? I mean, like, aren't you guys best friends? Why, why do you not know where Hogan is? But basically I just, that really stuck to me when I, when I heard this promo, I don't know where he is right now, but Macho says, uh, Hogan is the best there is in the ring. But he's a bad judge of character, and that's obviously referencing Lex Luger, Hogan allowing Luger onto the team. Gene says that Gene and, and some other people he spoke with think that Luger actually hit Savage. Uh, when he hit Savage at War Games, it was unintentional. But Savage isn't buying it. He says you're either with him or against him, so either basically you go along with what Savage believes or he wants nothing to do with you, I guess. Macho says he doesn't buy Luger what Luger did as being an accident. Uh, he thinks Luger, Sting, and Jimmy Hart are all going to join the Dungeon of Doom. This obviously brings Luger out to the ring to call out Savage on his uh, his comments. Lex admits that he wants the world title. That's why he's here. Uh, he wonders if Savage has the same aspirations. Macho finally admits he also wants to be champion, um, but he isn't buying anything Luger's selling. He thinks Luger hitting him the night before was indeed intentional. He makes it very clear to Lex. And then uh, Savage teases a fight right there in the ring, but nothing transpires. What did, you, what did you take from this segment? I like it, to be honest with you. We all know Savage is the nut job, and they've kind of been playing that up ever since he's debuted in the WCW. Uh, he's been crazy. I think when he even came in at Starcade, they was like, whose side is he going to be on? And they kind of played off that. He could be one way or the other. Uh, Luger has come in with that same sort of personality. Like he hasn't really shown his true colors just yet. Like so, you don't really know which side he's on. So uh, the uncertainty and, and things like that, I enjoyed it. And these two, I don't really care for Luger at this point in his career. Yeah. But uh, they're two of my favorites. So I, I enjoyed this segment. It's actually one of the better segments on this show. <laughs> like Savage says, all we're missing is the bell, ding ding, and then he just slaps the hell out of uh, out of Luger. I think it sets up something for next week. Yeah, That's I, next I, week. I know we have things coming up here between the two for the next week or two at, at the very least. And yeah, yeah, that was really uh, a cool way to end it. Savage slaps Luger, basically, you know, calls him out there, and they tease like they're they're going to have a fight there. But uh, cooler heads prevail, or or whatever you want to call it, and they basically just build build it up for next week to bring the the viewers back. So that's pretty much what this segment was about right here. And uh, if you didn't think that the Baywatch segment was hokey between Sullivan and Savage. You can't tell me this wasn't hokey because we we take a look. We go back to the opening of Fall Brawl, the pay-per-view the night before, and there's a video shot outside of Hulk Hogan pulling up on his motorcycle, 
uh, with some uh, planted fans standing around him. When out of nowhere, the giant shows up in a monster truck. Yes, like Bigfoot, like Gravedigger, like who, what, like the Medusa truck uh, for wrestling fans out there. So the giant shows up in a giant monster truck and proceeds to drive towards Hulk Hogan and these fans. So he's going to commit like, you know, murder, a mass murder. Luckily, Hogan and the fans get out of the way in time, and the giant winds up just running over Hogan's motorcycle. He destroys Hogan's motorcycle. He drives over it and, and destroys it. So <laughs> that's basically going to set up a bunch of horse shit coming up here at Halloween Havoc. This begins that monster truck match, you know, at Havoc. And um, yeah. So tell me, t- are you going to defend this one, or what are your thoughts here? I, I got nothing on this one, man. I didn't buy this when I was a kid. I don't understand whose idea. I just had to be Bischoff. The monster truck match. Who thought this was a good idea? Yeah, I don't know how you incorporate this. I don't know who comes up with it. I don't know what the reasoning was behind it. There was no sell job. I mean, they weren't pimping the the league, the the monster truck league, or anything like that. It wasn't no. like this was this was you know coincides with a, a pr- promotional type deal or monster anything jam like this. Or something. Yeah, yeah. there's just yeah. There I know just, they they tie in Bigfoot and say that the guys who made Bigfoot is making Hogan's truck. But, I mean, uh, dude, I have no idea. I, I can't defend this. As much as I'd like to, I'll save it, I think, for next week for the one thing that I do enjoy uh, about the whole monster truck. So, But, yeah, dude, I, I got nothing. I, I don't understand it. I don't understand how they think a, a monster truck match can be a sell for a pay-per-view. It, it just screams Bischoff because Bischoff likes the motorcycle stuff. He's from Detroit, so I'm assuming he likes the trucks and that sort of stuff. It's just in his DNA to like muscle cars and and things like this. It just seems that way anyway. Uh, I could be completely off base there, but some of the things he does insinuates that that's the case. And I'm assuming this was his idea, and uh, this was terrible. Yeah, terrible. I just don't. I just don't know who pitches this idea. Who comes how the, how this idea even comes about? Who's who's laying around and just comes up with this monster truck? Two monster trucks on the roof of you know of, of the Cobo Hall and and whatever the nonsense was that that transpired there, but we'll move into the main event. I think we should uh, watch that show. I think, I think we, we should watch that show. Wow, yeah, you're a glutton for punishment. Maybe on <laughs> maybe on the All Access tier we can do a watch along. It'll coincide with Halloween. It'll coincide with the Monday Warfare show here. It's it's a possibility. If I was going to do a Halloween Havoc, I'd like to do one that I found more entertaining for myself, but. I mean, I'm not necessarily against it since it plays into the Monday Warfare show. And we go back to the ring, thank God, because we've been everywhere else. So we we close the show with Ric Flair taking on Brian Pillman, and obviously Flair's looking for a little revenge because Pillman cost Flair his match last night at Fall Brawl with Arn Anderson. They trade some chops here back and forth, and probably two of the master choppers of this era here. For as good as Flair is as a chopper, Brian Pillman just sounds like he's trying to murder people. In every match he's ever had where he throws a chop, and there's plenty of them to be had here from both sides. I thought Steve Casey was the chopper. The chopper. <laughs> Steve but Casey. Yeah. For those yeah. of you who, who don't get that um, joke, go listen to our NWA 89 uh, Memory Grenade episodes. Chopper Steve Casey. They had a good spot here where Ric Flair does the flare, flare flip in the corner, lands on the apron. Pillman tries to clothesline oh. him off. Flair ducks. Flair knocks Pillman down. Flair goes to the top rope. Tries to jump off, jumps right into a Pillman dropkick. Probably the best spot of the match. Probably the best spot of the night that I can think of. Yeah, I think so, too. Uh, it was really cool looking. Flair is looking pretty hard here. Yeah, and that's unfortunate because the match doesn't get a whole lot of time. 
But uh, during the match, uh, Bischoff sells. He doesn't understand why Brian Pillman turned. He's basically they're basically selling Pillman as a heel now because he did turn heel the the night before during that Arn and Flair match. And Pillman's already showing signs of being crazy, the crazy Brian Pillman here. Just some mannerisms, some facial expressions he makes during this match. But the match ends seems abruptly out of nowhere. Flair just applies the figure four. Gets the win. So, uh, Pillman submits in no time. Match only goes five minutes, 25 seconds. I, I know this is only an hour show, but it sucks that this match was so short. Yeah, I agree. A lot of the matches are going to be short because there's so much you got to pack into one hour, especially the way Bischoff started this show out. Not this particular show, but Nitro as a whole, the way he booked it, uh, whoever was booking. So, yeah, it, it's fast-paced, action-packed, and very short matches. So my next question is, what does this say for Johnny B. Bad and Brian Pillman going 30 minutes last night? Bad loses to Orndorf, a guy who's basically an under mid card at this point, under mid carder at this point, if that's a thing, and and uh, a comedy gimmick. And then Pillman turns around and loses to Ric Flair. There's nothing wrong with losing to Ric Flair, but loses to Ric Flair by a figure four in in like five minutes time. And both of these guys had just competed to see who the number one contender for Sting is. It's like a, I know this isn't intentional, but to me it comes off as a big FU to Sting and the U.S. title because these are the guys in line for his championship. And I know that wasn't intentional, but it's just bad booking in my estimation. This is things that they continue to do going forward that uh, they never stop doing. It's almost as if the belts don't matter at all, especially the lower ones. I mean, you have two title changes in, in 24 hours on the tag team titles. Uh, you do that a few more times, and they're already going to be useless. Sting's two biggest opponents that just fought, like you said, 30 minutes, the best match out of both of these shows, uh, Fallbrow and Nitro, by far, they busted their ass, and it's all for nothing. I mean, you can sit here and say they're the number one contender and things like that, but <laughs> job him out to a dude who's past his prime and, and a, gim- a comedy gimmick that goes nowhere. And then Pillman, I, I can kind of understand Pillman just Flair getting his revenge and costing him like probably as arguably as one of his biggest matches of his career against Arn Anderson, just by the way they were booking it. So that makes a little sense, but yeah, I don't, it, it's just bad for Sting. Like these are my top contenders and they're jobbed out back to back, you know, yeah, same five, show. six minutes. Yeah. So, and I'm not against yeah. Pillman doing the job here. I'm I'm fine with that. It's just when they, they got five minutes, maybe the figure four isn't the best way to go home. That's just my opinion. And we close the show yeah. with a another Ric Flair promo, and once again, he wants to get that word in there. He promises once again to kick Arn's ass. Uh, maybe as soon as next week, we'll see what happens with that. And then as Nitro closes, Bischoff randomly shouts out, there's something going on in the back, and they don't really allude to what it is or anything like that. So I think this is just a... Uh, a ploy to get you to tune back in to the next pro either Saturday night or next week on nitro just to see what was, you know, what was happening, even though they probably don't even address it again. So uh, just another quick witted uh, decision made by Bischoff there to draw more attention. If you were paying attention. Yeah. I remember picking up on that too. Heenan does that quite a bit as well. Um, Bobby had makes those comments even during this show. Yeah. And just a couple quick notes as we end this episode of nitro, they mentioned at the end of the program that Nick Bockwinkel, who's commissioner at this point at WCW, would comment on the American Males title win uh, that's coming Saturday night. So we're going to find out on Saturday night whether the Males get to keep the titles or if the titles are going to be handed back to Harlem Heat. What happens is the Males do get to keep the titles, so they are indeed World Tag Team Champions. 
There were no WWF remarks this week, none whatsoever from Eric Bischoff, so he's not overkilling it. He's done quite a bit already, so he's kind of pulling back a little bit so it's not overbearing and he's not giving Vince too much credit. Or, or And it, it makes more sense this week because they're not even on at the same time. So why give away the spoilers when you're not even running head-to-head? So smart move here by Bischoff, I thought, just kind of taking a week off because we know he comes back and does worse later on. <laughs> Absolutely. And we also learned that Steve Austin was just fired over the weekend. So uh, we'll keep an eye on that and see where Steve mm. winds up, huh? Yeah, I wonder. So I had a question for you because you're really big. We talk on the grenade about how long you want your squash matches and how long you want this and that and the other. I was curious, which format do you like better? Because last week we had that four-match format where the matches went really short. This week the matches are still only going five, six minutes, but it's a three-match format. So which one do you prefer? Do you prefer more matches and even less time? Or do you think three is solid here based on the current way Bischoff has the layout of, of Nitro? Uh, I prefer the three. I mean, when you got names in the ring, in the in the in the matches, I, I feel like you need to give them a little bit more time. Agreed. Because um, if you go out if you go out there and you have dudes jobbing in three minutes, it's hard to get them be- built back up. So if you're just fighting no names, you know, jobbers and things, kind of like what's going on in WWF sometimes. Absolutely, one or two minutes is fine. But if you're gonna have names in, on both sides of the ledger. They need to at least get four or five minutes. And I know Meltzer mentioned that and uh, the Observer that three matches seems to be the perfect format. That way you have enough time for the angles and the interviews and stuff like that. So I tend to agree with him on that aspect. So, Steve, what was your uh, favorite segment on this show? Um, I, I had to go with Flair and Pillman by default almost. I mean, I do like the Savage Luger confrontation. It just wasn't enough to say that was the best thing on the whole show. Even though they had like five and a half minutes, they did really they did a lot in that. But overall, this show wasn't very good at all. I, I didn't. I wasn't a huge fan of this show. I thought it was, yeah. was kind of crap. I think I think the way you described it is uh, the same way I would have described it. Uh, I have to go with Flair and Pillman by default as well. Uh, that wasn't necessarily one of their best matches ever, Pillman or Flair's either. Uh, it wasn't nothing bad, but you know they went five minutes and I don't know. It just it wasn't not anything special. And I agree with you. I think I think the Savage and Luger segment was uh, intriguing, but Savage, you know, needs somebody better to play off of. He does better when the other person's more, I don't know, someone with more flair, not necessarily Ric Flair, but just someone that's able to have somebody with a quicker quick wit. Kid. Yes. And so, yeah, I, you I know, I like the idea of that segment. I loved when Savage slapped him. That really built things up. But again, it was like Sluger and Luger just kind of stood there. You know, I mean, he did, you know, he did get a little, you know, defensive, but he just kind of stood there. It wasn't the response I would have wanted to see elicited, you know. So, yeah, I have to go with Flair and Pillman also by default here. And we'll jump ahead three days to Thursday night. Raw. And this is September 21st, 1995. And uh, the Raw theme that we discussed on last episode, uh, it had debuted on that episode of Raw the, the week prior. And it had words in in the theme music, and I'd said I made a comment that I don't ever remember hearing that before. And the reason is apparently they only aired on that one episode. They move over to an instrumental version of that song here this week, and a very wise move because that song sucked. It was horrible. I remember last week when we was listening to it, I was like, "What in the hell is going on here?" Yeah. What is this? I don't. I didn't remember it either. I'm well, that ex- it back to the instrumental. It didn't take long. Yeah, that explains why it was a one-week thing. So apparently they thought they thought the same thing. 
Uh, I was reading in the Observer, and uh, it turns out that Doc Hendricks was pegged to replace Jerry Lawler here on commentary for the new fall season. Thank God that didn't happen. Could you imagine having to listen to Michael Hayes on the grenade in 1989 and Doc Hendricks on WWF TV in 95 at the same fucking time? Oh, my God. Oh, dude, you would have had to find another co-host for at least one of these shows. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't handle it. Oh, my goodness. He's bad enough showing shitty T-shirts and VHS tapes. And so Raw's now showing clips. Like, if you remember the end of last week's episode of Raw, they're showing clips of what's going to happen on the next week's show. I think they're trying to do that to use it as a teaser to draw more ratings, but in reality, was it, was it smart to show that this this stuff's recorded? Should they really uh, slap the fans in the face and, and say, hey, look, we're not even live? Because you even though they don't announce it as being live, you kind of presume it's live when you're watching it. Basically, by showing you clips of what's going to happen next week, it's like, this has already happened. It made me lose a little interest even watching this, you know, this many years later when they when they show those highlights in advance. What did you think about that? Me personally, when I was watching this, I was nine years old. I didn't think anything of it. I didn't really differentiate between a live show and a recorded show. So I, I didn't think anything of it. And I think if it's done properly in the format that WWF did it where they were showing clips, if you show like cliffhanger clips where you something's about to happen, then they cut it type deal. I could see how that could draw in fans, whether it's recorded or not is irrelevant. We all know what happened when Foley won the title in 99. It was recorded and Shivani gave the results and everybody turned the channel. So if, if something's entertaining and something's happening, whether it's recorded or not, it's irrelevant to most people. I, I'd like to think, and they're going to tune in if they want to see something. I don't have any issues with it. And I think it was funny how WWF's approach to completely ignore the competition. And they do say when you're number one, you should, you should never acknowledge your competition. But I thought it was insulting, uh, insulting to the fans to pretend Lex Luger never existed. At least say he left town because he was afraid of Davy Boy or Davy Boy beat him down and ran him off. Get your own talent over in the process. I'm fine with that. But ignoring the fact that Lex Luger ever existed at all is almost like you're embarrassed uh, on yourself. That's the way I take it anyway. Uh, meanwhile, Bischoff takes the opposite approach, constantly mocking Luger leaving the WWF, giving away taped results, changing Rotunda's name to VK, making snide references to their product being superior. Bischoff has gone for the throat early and often, and from a business standpoint, I can't really be upset with him for that. I just don't understand why Vince hasn't retaliated by simply saying that, basically implying that Lex Luger's a coward, that that he ran off or he got a, you know, got a beat down, couldn't, couldn't handle the, the WWF talent or, or things like that. It's just odd that they just completely swept Luger under the rug as if the last several years, the call to action campaign and, and all this other nonsense, none of this ever happened. Yeah, that is surprising. I mean, it's a perfect, it's an easy way to get your talent over, especially since I think Davey boy's fighting diesel for the WWF title at the next in your house. So what better way to get your next, challenger over by saying you know what that dude that's on the other channel that's trying to get a title shot or was already jobbed out to hogan he got beat down and tucked his tail and left and this is the guy that did it and he's gonna fight for the title going forward that sort of deal i mean it'd have been a perfect way to get david boy over hell even show the clip who cares if he's no longer with you show the video you have it show him getting his ass kicked yeah Um, that always uh that always uh puzzled me as well so anyway 
Raw kicks off with clips from last week's episode, which also appears to be a new thing. I don't really remember Raw kicking off by showing you what happened on last week's episode. Last week on Raw, you know. <laughs> so um, then we're reminded of the uh, we're reminded by video clip of the original Razor Ramon one two three kid match where the kid upset Razor back in nineteen ninety three because we're getting a match here between best buddies Razor Ramon and the one two three kid. Of course, the kid's been down and out lately. He thinks Razor's babying him too much. He wants to prove he can handle his handle himself here. So we get Razor and the kid to kick things off here on Raw. And the kick, the kid actually attacks Razor to start the match. And I had to laugh because the first move of the match was a simple kick. And Vince says, what a maneuver. So I, I know Vince loves to say that line when he doesn't know what a damn move's called. But, I mean, the kid literally kicked him. And Vince says, what a maneuver. So we get our first one a maneuver early here on this episode of Monday Night Raw. Uh, Razor takes over though. He dominates the match for a while and he's almost playing it. Like he isn't even taking the kids seriously. He's just kind of wrestling him. Like he's a jobber. Uh, but Ramon winds up taking a bump to the floor. The kid takes over, puts Razor in a sleeper. We go into commercial, come back out of the commercial. Razor breaks the, the, the sleeper, the kid and Razor collide and, and they smash into Earl Hebner. And somehow that forces the kid and Earl to roll out of the ring and to the floor while Razor's laid out in the middle of the ring Dean Douglas comes rushing down, not Shane Douglas. Dean Douglas comes rushing down, climbs the top rope, hits a, a splash onto the back of Razor, and they, they should tell Shane to stay off the top rope. His moves look look like crap off the top rope. Anyways, he lays Razor out with a splash off the top rope, and then the kid comes back in the ring at the same time as Earl Hebner, and that just drove me nuts. Earl Hebner, your your little scrawny referee, is recovering at the same speed and rate as the one two three kid here. But maybe that's just something I noticed. I don't know. So yeah, Dean, I didn't really pick up on that one. Dean takes off back to his classroom, says Vince McMahon, which I, I wanted to smack my head when I heard that line. But anyways, the kid slowly climbs into the ring. He slowly covers Razor. Earl Hebner proceeds to make one of the slowest counts in wrestling history, and Razor lays there playing dead from a splash to his back. And the one, two, three kid gets the win. He pins Razor Ramon in seven minutes and 10 seconds. And the story being Hebner didn't see it. The kid didn't see the interference. Kid thinks he beat Razor all on his own. And Razor lays there still dead after the pinfall, all from a splash to the back. That's a, that's a powerful ass splash, Steve. Yeah. Uh, my notes here says felt like a very, very underwhelming finish. A splash off the top rope just takes Ramon out. Not sure about that. I mean, if it was like a Fatu splash from the Samoa SWAT team or something like that, I could see it. But Dean Douglas, you know, he's all of what, 225 at this point? He looks really toned down and, and smaller. So a, a splash from him is not believable at all. It just felt like a very underwhelming finish. The match itself was pretty good. Just the ending kind of sucked. And we go straight from the match back to the classroom. Dean Douglas's classroom. Oh, these things were terrible. Um, he spells out an acronym here as he gives everyone a grade. He gives the one, two, three kid a D because he's dumb and assumes he won the match all on his own. He gives Razor an E because Razor's wrestling Dean at the pay-per-view in your house because Razor wants to be elevated. That's what E is for. Dean gives himself an A because he's Dean Douglas. And lastly, he writes an N on there because he says it's a no-brainer that the Dean's going to beat Razor it in your house. And what does that spell? The acronym spells Dean. He's so clever. I know you're a huge Shane Douglas, Mark, but this Dean Douglas stuff never worked for me. And I loved Shane Douglas at this point. When he went back to w, or ECW 96, he turned me off. I, he just talked so freaking much 
that, to where I just didn't even want to see him on the screen. And and his work rate was nowhere near, you know, the levels of when you saw him flying around the ring either. Um, so I was never into the uh, mid and late 90s Shane Douglas. However, up until this point, I had no reason not to be a fan of Shane Douglas. In fact, I was excited when I saw that he was coming into the WWF. However, this gimmick here, you tell me, man, are, are you buying it? Are, are you are you cool with this Dean Douglas character? I am not. The guy doing the character is fine. I, I love Shane Douglas, but the Dean Douglas gimmick, I, I don't like it. I thought it was hokey and, and stupid. I will say I had I, I was watching him get like sign autographs or something. And people were asking him questions about it, and he was talking. You know he holds no punches. He doesn't care. He'll say what he feels. And um, he was talking about the Dean Douglas gimmick, and he's like, you know, when I was told I was coming in, I was going to be able to stick to the normal grades that you would give a student, you know, right. A, B, C, D, and F. Yeah. Um, but but as soon as he got there, uh, they was like, no, you're going to do all these different things and you got to do all this and all that. And he's like, that's not what I signed up for, essentially. And then he got the gear that got mailed to him or something. And he's like, Vince, as soon as I got there, Vince gave me his number and said, call me anytime, man. I'll talk to you. I'm more than happy. So as soon as he got his gear, he called up Vince and said, you know, I don't like the gear. I'm not feeling it. Uh, he's like, well, that's what you got. He's like, I knew then, yeah, you may have the number, but it doesn't mean you get to talk. Um, so, uh, I think as soon as he got there and saw the writing on the wall, I don't think he was fully invested in the character. And then he got thrown in with the click and had to deal with them. And they already probably didn't like him for where he came from. So it, it was just a disaster all around. And I'm sure he couldn't wait to get the hell out of Dodge. So I can't say I blame him. Yeah. It doesn't take long either. He's gone before the end of the year. Next match, it's a it's a randomosity of tag team action. Here's Bob Holly teams up with Savio Vega to take on Kama and Tatanka of the Million Dollar Corporation. Uh, before the match starts, they go back to Superstars and show a clip of Henry Godwin slopping Ted DiBiase. Godwin had just recently turned babyface on DiBiase. Uh, the faces control the match first. Savio looking good here. He always looked good. Savio Vega was a great, mm-hmm. tremendous top talent. Man, I I just wish they could have done more with him. He deserved a a really decent intercontinental title reign at the very least i thought and i was really pulling for him that year when he was in the king of the ring in there before they gave it to mabel yeah uh bob holly yeah, causes... awesome in that king of the ring tournament man he did yeah. awesome yeah i thought he did a great job even the match over irs on on the pre-show but uh, mm-hmm. bob holly re- dist- uh, unintentionally distracts the referee here it allows the heels to take over and double team savio vega we get a double clothesline spot double down hot tags to comma and bob holly they come in for the finish Holly hits a nice missile drop kick on Kama, which everything turns into a four-way melee here. Everybody's in the ring. Uh, Bob Holly tries a crossbody. I think Kama's intention was to catch him and turn it into a power slam, but I don't know what happened there. <laughs> they they kind of just tumble down, and Kama kind of slings Holly over to the side and crawls on top of him, makes the cover. Sloppy spot, yeah. sloppy finish. But the Million Dollar Corporation get the win here in five minutes and 47 seconds. I don't know. Maybe it was just me. It looked like he was supposed to turn into a power slam and just lost balance. Yeah, I think his foot went out underneath him, uh, like his leg, his knee buckled. It it wasn't like an injury type deal. I I just think maybe he anticipated something and didn't realize how big Holly was and just mistimed it a little bit. But, yeah, it looks like his knee just gave way and he kind of just – he barely got him over, if if you want to call it that. But, yeah. It was actually a decent match. The, the ending kind of stinks, but I'm with you, man. I even put down here, I really enjoy Savio's offense, man. His kicks, his action, his facials, he's very believable. And 
so damn entertaining uh, during this time. Yeah. Definitely deserved better than what he got. Yeah, and, uh, you know, any match with Common Tatanka that was halfway decent uh, like this match was, you got to give credit to the guys who were taken on, and and, and definitely uh, Savio Vega there, because this was a, a bearable match, and usually any match with Kama or Tatanka, the heel Tatanka specifically, in it, I mean, I, I'm, I'm done. I, I'm going to go catch some Zs, or I'm tuned out, man. And uh, this was actually believable and fine. Uh, nothing wrong with it. It wasn't like awesome but it was it was okay it was okay for tv mm-hmm. it's a we I move agree. on to a uh, razor ramon promo he's basically talking trash on dean douglas they got a match coming up at in your house uh they advertise the wrestlemania 11 special scheduled to air on september 30th never really always understood this because they actually advertised it to air i believe originally in the summer and then it just that just disappeared that idea disappeared and then it pops up here again in the fall and i believe they also switched channels it was originally supposed to air on NBC and then it winds up on Fox or it was originally supposed to air on Fox winds up on NBC. I don't really remember how that all played out, but I remember the days, the, the month switched and the channel, the network switched. So really weird stuff there. Uh, we go to a squash yeah, match. I think it ends up on Fox. Is that what happens? Yeah, it ends up airing on Fox. I, I can't remember the original date, but yeah, it's on Fox. And we move on with uh, Jean-Pierre Lafitte with a quick squash match over Brian Walsh. Of course, Lafitte's been stealing Bret Hart garb, and uh, I, I believe they just had a mat or have a match coming up here at, at the In Your House pay per view this Sunday. So that that was probably the the show stealer, I believe, wasn't it? That was like the match of the night. Yeah, at the In Your House. Yeah, uh, Lafitte gets the win here over Brian Walsh with Le Cannon Ball in three minutes eighteen seconds. And following that match, we see some ring crew out there. They're reinforcing the ring because, oh boy. It's men on a mission taking on the tag team champions, Yoko Zuna and Owen Hart. So you have Yoko out there, Mabel out there, and even Mo, really. I mean, that's a lot of beef in the ring all at once. Poor Owen. Yeah. And the story here <laughs> early in the match is they keep Owen in the ring. They don't want Yoko Zuna to tag in, so Owen gets worked over. And Owen does some good work of his own as well here early in the match. Yoko finally tags in, and they tease a showdown between him and Mabel, but Mo's actually the legal man, so... We wind up getting Yokozuna with Mo in there. Yay. Finally, Mo does tag yeah. Mabel in, and, and we get the two big, it's the big showdown between Yokozuna and Mabel. And Mabel actually leaves his feet and hits like a, a lariat or whatever you want to call it, a clothesline, a, a, a leaping clothesline in Yokozuna. And they both hit the mat at the same time. And I don't know if this was scheduled to happen, if they planned this in advance, or if it was legit. But there's like a cameraman, I guess his elbow's resting on the apron with the camera. And as these, this, uh, you know, quarter or half a ton or more than a half a ton hit the mat, it causes the camera to completely shake left and right. Like, I don't know, a good foot. And I, I thought it was funny. Like it, it just, it seemed realistic. Like the shake wasn't over the top. So it just felt real to me. I mean, right. I don't know. Yeah, it was pretty cool. I remember seeing that. If it was an accident or it wasn't supposed to happen, it turned out perfect. It really enhanced it. Some things happen. Yokozuna's in the ring with Owen. He holds Mo uh, for Owen to deliver a, a missile dropkick off the top rope. I couldn't believe Mo actually kicked out on the two count of a of an Owen missile dropkick there. I, I thought for sure at least Mabel was going to come in and make the stop, but Mo just kicks out. And Mo hadn't even been doing anything this year. So it just uh, surprised me, I guess. And Yoko's barely been in the ring during this match, and he looks gassed is something I noted here because he has to come in and stop a three count when Owen's getting pinned. Yoko barely makes it there in time. And even then he kind of just puts his foot on Mo 
during the cover just to just to break it up. It was pretty sad to see. I mean, he's just uh, really yeah. out of shape here. And I know that sounds funny based on his size, but at one point Yokozuna could move around a whole lot better than here in '95. Just go watch his '93 run or his uh, AWA days when he was way smaller. Of course, their manager, Yokozuna and Owens' manager, Jim Cornette, uh, distracts the referee and it allows Yoko, the illegal man, Yokozuna, to come in and drop his big fat leg across the back of the head of Mo, and then Owens steals the win. So Yoko and Owen retain the titles and they get the win. I was actually very surprised this wound up being a pinfall. I didn't see that happening with two heel teams, the top two heel teams, if you will, too, uh, out there. But Yoko and Owen get the win in nine minutes and 30 seconds. I was surprised, too, with the finish. And it's kind of weird. I know it comes up in the next, I think it's the next episode, um, to where this doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. But, um, yeah, not a terrible match. I just, uh, Yoko has no business even wrestling anymore at this point, to be honest with you. Yeah, it was it was very evident here. It was almost like hiding Andre near the end of his career. Mm-hmm. I mean, Andre was a little worse. I know he was a lot worse off physically. But, I mean, just... Um, Condition-wise, Yokozuna was looking rough out there, and he was in a. It was a tag match, and he didn't do do a whole lot, and he was looking looking rough yeah. near uh, near the end. But anyways, uh, we move on to a pre-tape promo of Shawn Michaels and Diesel. They're basically promoting the in your house triple header match: Shawn and Diesel, the world heavyweight and intercontinental champion, taking on Yoko and Owen, the world tag team champions. And the rules of that match states that whoever gets the win wins the other person's title. So we could see new heavyweight champion, new intercontinental champion, or Sean and Diesel could have all the belts. And we'll see what happens there this weekend at In Your House. And then it's back to the ring for an in-ring promo with the other side of that match. It's Jim Cornette talking for Yokozuna, Owen Hart, and Mr. Fuji. And that's a good thing that Corny's doing the talking for Fuji. That's why they brought him in. Mm-hmm. Cornette says that they don't buy Diesel and Sean are still best friends, or, or best friends again, I should say. And uh, But Yoko and Owen are a collective unit. And as good as they are individually, they're even better together. So, I mean, basically, Cornette thinks his team's bringing all the belts back. Or I'm not really sure how that works. Do they get both belts, the Intercontinental have you, or just one of them? I, I think just one of them. Whoever makes, but, the, uh, whoever makes the pin. So, like, if Owen pinned Sean, he'd be the IC champion. If Yoko right. pinned Diesel, he'd be the world or, or whatever. Gotcha, they gotcha. Get them both. And that's pretty much it, man. No big angles or anything this week to set up in your house. I mean, other than Dean Douglas doing that splash. There was really no interaction with with any of the guys who were who were feuding here. But uh, are you buying this in your house, Steve? Uh, to be honest with you, man, I didn't buy any of the in your houses. Uh, I got all the major pay per views, but I didn't really watch the in your houses. So, but um, I meant I no, meant just looking I would not back. Buying it, okay. I, that's what I meant. Looking right. back, uh, I, I do like the idea of the main event. Now that that was creative, um, I liked it, and uh, I would have been interested in seeing that if, if I had my own house and paying for my own bills, I probably would have bought it just to see that main event, to be honest with you. Yeah, and I'll be honest with you, too. That was the only thing that sold me on that show back then when I did get it was the main event match. It was intriguing. It was different. Sean and Diesel were out there. I mean, I was pretty much a big, big-time big Sean fan up until 96-ish. I was I was sold on the on that match alone. And I think I was still giving Dean Douglas half a chance here. As far as in-ring work, I was kind of looking forward to Dean Douglas and Razor, but what winds up happening at the In Your House pay-per-view, Razor basically dominates the entire match. It's just, I don't know. Not not a big fan of, of the way Shane Douglas was treated here in this run. Yeah, me either. And so it's ratings time this week, and we learn that 
Monday Night Raw did a 2.5 on Thursday, while Nitro did a 2.4 on Monday. So they both had pretty much close to the same rating. Their shares were identical, 3.4 shares. It's 3.4% of everyone who was watching TV at that point in time. So 3.4% of the Monday Night fans, 3.4% of the Thursday Night fans. And you might even say Nitro did a little better, even though they lost the ratings technically by a point or a, a tenth of a point, Raw 2.5, Nitro 2.4, because Nitro was going up against Monday Night Football. Raw was really unopposed as far as sports goes. But Raw did win. Technically, Lost they that. did. What's that? I was just going to say, but Raw was out of their normal time slot too, so right. that probably hindered them a little bit as far as their rating goes. Well, that's that's very true too. That's a good way to look at it. But Raw does win here, if you're counting it, since they were on different nights. Raw gets a 2.5, Nitro 2.4. Uh, segment of the night for Raw, Steve. What do you got? As uneventful as the finish was, I had to go with Razor and the Kid. Uh, it was pretty nonstop action. It was it was a fun match. Uh, Razor and Kid just uh, went together like peanut butter and jelly, man. Whenever they were in the ring together, they were really damn good and entertaining. So I, I went with the Kid and Razor. I think I would have went with that one myself uh, had the finish been a little different. I agree with you. I mean, their, their stuff was always great. I thought this match was perfectly fine. Certainly nothing wrong with it. I enjoyed it. But I think I'm going to go with the main event just because I really wasn't expecting a finish here. They really shocked me with a finish here. I don't know that the the wrestling was better. I thought Owen did a tremendous job here working with guys the size of Moe and Mabel, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, but just the finish surprised me. Uh, the finish, having a finish in this match surprised me far more than having a finish in the Razor and Kid match. And we had seen that before. It may have been in a different story, but we had seen that before. And so, I don't know. I, I can't yeah. say Yokozuna or Men on a Mission were any better than Razor and the Kid. That's not, that's not factual. Right. But I, I don't know. Say, though, uh, I just, I like. Build teams and bring together. Right. Is, uh, is completely different for for that time period. You never, I mean, you may have saw two good guys go at it, just you know, mutual respect type deal. But you never saw two two heel teams in the ring together. That never happened. So that that was unique in that sense. Um, yeah, I mean, we had a world tag team title yeah. match on TV. We got a a clean, well, not a clean finish, but we got a finish, and it was the two top heel teams. And like you pointed out, you never saw heel versus heel or face versus face. And when you did heel versus heel, you usually never got a. a a pinfall out of it is usually a double disqualification, double count out, things like that. So it's funny. We open raw with a face versus a face. We close raw with a heel versus heel. So things are changing a little bit here in the world of the WWF. I think it's for the better. I think they realized early on in 95 that their product was going down the toilet. So they, you can see with this fall, this new fall season that they used to do, uh, it seems like they're doing um, their best to try and change things up a little bit, turn that corner and, get more wrestling oriented um there's still gimmicks there's still stupid stuff but at the end of the day i think they're they're doing they're doing better and so who's your winner steve i mean we already know raw did a 2.5 nitro did a 2.4 but who's your winner raw or nitro based on the content see i wasn't a huge fan of the tag match so to me i had to go with nitro there wasn't a lot on either one of these shows that really stuck out um it's more of a draw to be honest with you but if I had to pick one, uh, I'd probably go with Nitro. All right. I'm going to take Raw, and I'm going to tell you guys why real quick. Um, on Nitro, the only thing, I, the, the only selling point for me on Nitro was Flair and Pillman. And, again, that match only went five, six minutes, 
somewhere in between there. If this was 1990 or 1991, Flair versus Pillman, and they even did 10 minutes, I think that would have sold the whole show. I don't, even, I don't care what was on Raw. I think that would have been plenty enough for me to choose Nitro. But this is 1995, Flair versus Pillman, and it was perfectly fine, but it wasn't at the level as I would have liked to have seen. And I felt like consistently throughout Raw, even if nothing was great, everything was consistently okay, whereas on Nitro there were some things that I could have done without. So even that Kama and Tatanka tag team match was okay. And and so for that, I, yeah. I have to go with Raw just because consistently. And again, like you said, neither show was impressive. So I'm just going with what had mo- more stuff that I could bear. <laughs> if, that, if that sounds, uh, <laughs> if that makes any sense. Yeah, it makes sense to me, man. And There's moving, no winner on this week, to be honest with you. There no, really that, isn't. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is what it is. You know, we're going to have weeks like that, and then we're going to have weeks where they both probably knock it out of the park. So it's, I'm looking forward to that. Mm-hmm. And we move on to the next week, and this is the first live head-to-head in the Monday Night War. Uh, this is at the same time Ted Turner's merging with Time Warner, too, I should point out. But this is the first week Monday Night Raw will be live since the debut of Monday Nitro. That's crazy to think that it's been like a month or more since Raw's had a live episode. It's uh, They've had a lot in the can, and that's just... I don't know, man. That's that's recording far too much in advance for for my taste. I don't know how they used to do it over that summer slant or you know the U.S. Open break that they yeah. had in September. So I'm assuming they did like their two or three weeks worth of tapings, maybe four, and probably took a break themselves outside of you know house shows and stuff. But that makes sense, kind of rest up a little bit. But yeah, when you know Nitro is coming months in advance. Uh, to be honest with you, man, I'm. I'm doing maybe one or two tapings while they're while they're playing tennis, and as first chance I get, I'm coming back live. I, I don't even care. Can't get too far behind. We kick off this week with Alex Wright gets another win. This time it's a pinfall win over Disco Inferno in four minutes and one second. Disco's uh, winning the match near the end. There, he's he's uh, hot on the offense, uh, but he's more worried about his hair and dancing in the ring. And and he finally decides to go for his swinging neck breaker, the running neck breaker. The boogie oogie oogie, as he called it, but uh, Wright counters into a backslide, which I thought was uh, neat. I'd never really seen that spot done before, countering the neckbreaker into a backslide. But Wright does that, and he gets the win here in just just over four minutes. I thought it was a solid little match. Yeah, man, I can't stand Disco Inferno. I didn't like him when I was a kid. I don't like him now. I don't like the person. He's like the Michael Hayes of 1995. <laughs> so uh, the quicker he's off my TV, the better off we are. And he ain't going nowhere anytime soon, and it's unfortunate. Here's a fun story, or at least a fun story for me. Disco Inferno, when he debuted with WCW, he was already over with me before he ever made it to TV because Disco Inferno was a reoccurring character, if you will, on Radio WWF. See, he had, he was buddies with Raven. Raven thought he was, it was you know, Raven has his own sense of humor. humor. And Johnny Polo basically hosted the last six months of Radio WWF, Vincent didn't even care about the show anymore. So he would have Disco Inferno call in, and they would have these nonsensical conversations. And, hey, hey, this is the Disco Inferno, and I'm calling you from Studio 54, you know, and whatever. And they Raven would just have fun, back and forth, banter, and comedy would ensue on Radio WWF. So when he appeared on WCW, my first thought, thought was, Oh my God, that's the guy from Radio WWF. He's made it to the big times. Because up until then, I just thought he was some generic 
independent wrestler or just a character that, you know, they'd created for radio WWF. So once I saw him, I mean, I was already sold because I love basically everything on radio WWF. So I was into disco Inferno when he first showed up. It wasn't until later that I, I loathed him, uh, as a character and as a performer. And then, and now I don't even know what the hell, uh, he's doing on social media. That's another story in and of itself. I'm not going to get into all of that, but yeah, I thought this was a, a fun match. Honestly, I thought Alex Wright's looked pretty good as much as I've lo- I loathe Alex Wright in real time, 94, 95. Uh, he's two for two here, uh, for me on nitro and he's not as obnoxious here. If you're just watching him in the nitro era, probably because his initial, uh, force feed run is over with when they brought him in and had him working like 10 minute draws with flair on Saturday night and pushing him down your throat with that just horrendous music video where he's doing that God awful dance. So we're past that. So it's, I can kind of look at Alex Wright in a different light here. And I love his dad. His dad was awesome. Uh, Steve, Wright. You guys go check him out on, on YouTube, man. He's a talent, man. I've actually this- never had an issue with Alex, Wright. Actually, uh, his match at Starcade 94, I actually enjoy that match. Him and uh, Triple H, which is funny in and of itself. I never really had an issue with Alex, right? I mean, I, I can get why. Uh, if I was older, I probably would be in the same boat as you. But Disco, man, I, I don't have the backstory like you do as far as um, <laughs> the radio WWF. I'm sure if I was listening to that and getting a little bit of that, he probably wouldn't have been as bad. But, man, he's terrible to me. Yeah, I, I did like the match the the match position here i like that they uh, showcase two young guys yeah, though, here on nitro i thought that was yeah. really cool it was a great opener a lot of, a lot of uh, youth in the mm-hmm. ring some new talent in the ring uh fresh moves fresh faces uh, uh up tempo match so i, I like that i like that they that they did that and i hope they use that trend more often than not here yeah same here that standing drop kick you did on disco when disco is on the top rope that's just ridiculous man Oh yeah, Alex Wright did have some uh, some hops. He was tall. He was a tall guy, lanky, yeah. but man, he could yeah. get up, and a lot of his moves looked really good. So, um, yuck you, man. I'm with you. It, it wasn't a terrible opener. I'm just not a fan of the gimmick here. Right. So, we move on to a Hulk Hogan promo. It's a pre-tape with Jimmy Hart. It's absolutely ridiculous. Hogan's in a neck brace. He's selling the uh, the neck snap from War Games from the Giant, but he's bent over, and Jimmy Hart has the world championship belt on the back of Hogan's neck and Hogan's doing uh, not sit-ups, but stand-ups trying to work out his neck with his belt, which you can see Jimmy Hart is he he's not even allowing the belt to actually rest on Hogan's neck. He's like literally helping to relieve the weight of the stupid championship belt while Hogan's doing this. It's, it's terrible. The whole damn, the whole damn segment's terrible, but Hogan says he isn't missing any workouts. He challenges the giant to a match, which is going to take place at Halloween havoc. He says he's going to slam the giant through the mat and lay him to rest next to his dead father. Uh, And and right where Hogan beat his dead father, which is in the pay-per-views in Detroit. Of course, in Pontiac Pontiac is where Hogan beat Andre at WrestleMania 3. So he's referencing Andre again, but they refuse to say his name. So at least they keep Andre's name out of all this mess. Yeah, that's Uh, a good thing. Hogan doesn't just challenge him to a world title match. He challenges him to a monster truck match, which we don't even know what that is at this point, but they're selling it as machine versus machine and then man versus man. Terrible idea. <laughs> We've already kind of talked about that a little bit, but this is, uh, as far as I know, this is Hogan's first reference in calling the giant, the big stinky, nasty, rotten giant, dude. That's 
the first time I heard Hogan drop that, uh, it won't be the last time. No, it's not. That's what he refers to him for quite a while. <laughs> kind of stupid. It, it feels weird. Like watching it now, he feels so dated and old already. Being in WCW, like what? Yeah, and he and was. That's why now. he had lost fans. He had lost. Uh, they started slipping on the buy rates. I think I read like Fall Brawl and Havoc do not so good buy rates, especially uh, Fall Brawl. Yeah, yeah, and I think. I think that being in WCW sped up the process of him getting stale. I, I think Vince would have done a decent enough job of protecting him and, and possibly tweaking things the way things were done. Uh, whereas he went to WCW and just went straight into Cartoon City, and that's not what. Even in '94, WCW is put on tremendous like you know matches with Flair, Steamboat, and those guys, and. Hogan comes in and completely flips the scripts and probably pissed off half the fan base. And I think that just sped up the process. But, yeah, he's gone for a while uh, coming up. So that's that's a good thing. We move on to a recap from last week. It's the uh, segment between Lex Luger and Randy Savage where Savage slaps Luger, challenges him to a fight. Mean Gene's back here again this week. He's got Randy Savage out there once again in the ring, and immediately Savage calls Lex Luger to the ring, and here comes Lex basically running or jogging out to the ring, so they're trying to get as much as they can in, in, in their one hour of programming. So Luger comes jogging out to the ring. He says Randy Savage ha- has a lack of respect for Lex. Lex says he's wrestled Sting and Hogan, and now he has mutual respect with them, so maybe him and Savage need to wrestle in order to have respect for one another. He says Savage lacks common sense for slapping him last week, so. Luger challenges Savage to a match next week on Nitro, and Lex goes so far as to say he's going to put his title shot against Hogan on the line, and if he can't beat Savage next week, Luger says he will leave the WCW. Seems kind of fast. He just got here, and he's already going to leave if he can't beat Savage. <laughs> Where is he going to go? <laughs> I mean, there's nowhere else to go for him ECW. Even... EC Could you imagine 1995 <laughs> yeah. Lex Luger in ECW? Oh, my God. That would have been tremendous just for the fan reaction. Oh, man, um, he, there would have never I been a bigger I, heel. Oh, I know. <laughs> it would have worked. Payment would have made it work. But I, I think the, the announcers even referenced that. They're like, well, he kind of already up and left that other place. And um, if he loses next week, where is he going to go? There's always I, I Japan. I say Mongo <laughs> brought that up. Yeah. I think Mongo mentioned it. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, another good segment between these two, I think. I mean, they have their one or two angles that they're really pushing week after week, and this is one of them, and I think this is probably the best one they got going right now. Uh, it's definitely better than Hogan and Giant, for sure. Yeah, and I thought their promo this week was better than last week. Even even though it wasn't as hostile, like Savage wasn't slapping Luger or anything like that, I still thought this promo was better. It got more across as far as their, their storyline goes, I thought. Yeah, same here. And we move into the next match. It's Kurosawa with Colonel Rob Parker taking on Sergeant Craig Pittman. And both of these guys are still fairly green. Uh, of course, New Japan green is not United States green, though. Kurosawa's leaps and bounds ahead of Craig Pittman and really probably any rookie or, or sophomore wrestler in, in the United States. Kurosawa's pretty solid, but Bischoff's uh, shitty back leg round kick calls always annoyed me, and we got a plenty of those here with Kurosawa in the ring. I, I just I absolutely hated when Bischoff started throwing out those back leg round kick, front leg ass kicks, whatever the hell. So it just, uh, he did it here and it just always annoyed the piss out of me. Yeah. Same here. If you don't know what it's called, do a water maneuver and get it over with. I mean, come on, don't embarrass yourself or, or discredit the move. I mean, do a little research, go talk to Mike Tanay. 
Kurosawa did one of his signature moves on the concrete out there. He pulled up the, the mat and um, it's kind of a fallaway slam over the shoulder, almost like a Samoan drop, but just over the one shoulder. Tsonka did that every once in a while too, but I'm not really sure what the name of the move is. Maybe this is a what a maneuver, but Kurosawa does that to, to Pittman on the floor on the concrete. It seemed kind of odd to just bust that out in a mid-card match here on Nitro, but it was cool. Uh, Pittman played uh, the badass heel with against the Cobra going into here, so it, this is basically a heel versus heel match for all intents and purposes. Pittman backdrops Kurosawa outside, uh, backdrops him over the top rope to the floor. There's no disqualification. I almost had a flashback to 1989 NWA here. <laughs> Bischoff yes. even points it I, out. I that, even put down. Okay. What did you put down? Ahead, no, tell me. I want to know. Uh, I was just going to say, uh, Pittman backdrops Sawa over the top rope and no DQ. I was like, whether it's 89 or 95 WCW, just enforce the shit when they feel like it. <laughs> yeah, that's basically what Bischoff <laughs> said, too, matter. on commentary. He guesses the referee decided, you know, decided not to disqualify him or whatever, however he worded it. Pittman goes for the code red, which is the cross-arm breaker. Kurosawa tries for the Fujiwara arm bar. Kurosawa winds up going over Pittman with a German suplex and a bridge in 4 minutes and 25 seconds. Very snug work here. I honestly enjoyed this. Lots of unique work and wrestling holds, a little martial arts thrown in. Really good match. I liked it. I enjoyed it too. I mean, it was short and sweet, and Kurosawa always had a really unique look, and I, I always seem to enjoy his work. Pittman, on the other hand, he, he's all right, I guess. Nothing, nothing special. Yeah, this was a pretty solid match. They're two for two tonight. Yeah, when Pittman came in, they, that was another guy they pushed to the moon, and I just didn't buy it. He, he had no background in wrestling. He didn't really look like a whole lot, and I'm not questioning how tough he was as a Marine, uh, and I know he was a wrestling champion as a Marine. And I'm not questioning any of that. I just mean his actual look wasn't anything anything extraordinary to where I, I could really buy the push they were giving him. He was going around breaking people's arms or putting them in that code red, and they pushed him to the moon when he first came in, and I didn't buy it. And then after weeks and weeks of doing this, I did buy into it. And then by then his push kind of dissipated. Yeah. They, they kind of gave up on him and, and uh, they stuck him in that terrible feud with Cobra. Cobra is the future NWO sting, by the way, for anyone who doesn't know, but yeah. So Kurosawa here with the win, Craig Pittman's basically uh, fading into the sunset here as far as getting a push goes. And we get back to the ring. It's means you interviewing Arn Anderson and Brian Pillman, who are apparently now a thing. Uh, of course, Pillman helped Arn beat flair at the pay-per-view. And now they're kind of buddy, buddy here. Pillman says ever since Arn beat Flair, Rick has reached an all-time low. Flair is on a quest for a partner, I guess, to meet both of them at Halloween Havoc. I know uh, we got we got stuff coming up with that in the next few episodes as well, but what did you think of the promo itself, Pillman and Anderson out there together? Yeah, I enjoyed it. Uh, Pillman's promo was awesome. And then Arn says what goes around comes around, and it's coming around. I thought that was really good. So this is a really good promo. Promo for WCW Saturday night. The Giant will be there, along with Kevin Sullivan, the new World Tag Team Champions, the American Males. Sting wrestles Johnny B. Bad for the U.S. title. Are you shitting me? Johnny B. Bad goes 30 minutes with Brian Pillman on the pay-per-view, and the payoff match is on fucking WCW Saturday night. Are you serious, Steve? (laughs) I'm not serious, but uh, Bischoff was putting stuff on there. I mean... How far in advance did they record Saturday night? I'm just, I'm just curious if you knew. I don't know if you knew off the top of your head. but It depends on the week. I mean, I, I don't know when this one was specifically recorded. It could have been recorded after the pay-per-view, for, for all I know. it's just uh, It just seems odd that you put this match on pay-per-view, 30 minutes of your pay-per-view time. That's uh, just over a sixth of your pay-per-view. 
was this match. It went longer than the freaking war games match. And you're, yeah. you're throwing the match away on, on Saturday night. I, I just, I'm wondering if they had that in the can for, you know, maybe a month and uh, that's just the way it goes. I guess there's a number of different ways you can look at it, but yeah. And, and there's a whole angle on Saturday night that that goes into. It's not even, so I'm wondering if that could be it too. Right. If you want to talk about it now, we can. Obviously, it doesn't happen. He ends up with a few with DDP out of it. He doesn't even get his title match. They kind of have like a Saturday night feud. So, again, it just makes that match on the pay-per-view completely worthless. They lose. They job the next night, both guys. He doesn't even end up with a title match. And, um, it's, and it's all forgotten for Saturday about. night. Yeah, and it's forgotten yeah. about. He never gets the title match. I thought Sting was a fighting champion. He yeah. Oh yeah, the old four. Yeah, the old. Yeah. yeah, he says he has a flat tire. Page talks about the four flat tires. I never said I had four yep. flat tires. Yeah, it's that goes back to Austin Idol and Michael Hayes. That that's Georgia Championship Wrestling. They re recreated a, an angle from the uh, early eighties. It's pretty cool. I I've always enjoyed that angle, and I thought it was unique and different. I mean, I haven't seen Georgia, but either way, it's cool. I mean, they did all that for a Saturday Night Angle. It was oh, it's one of my yeah, it's one of my favorite yeah. angles from the uh, from Georgia. I mean, it's it's really cool um, with with one of my favorite guys, Austin Idol. Austin well, Idol, darling. Hayes. Yeah, but that was good, Michael Hayes. That was early '80s, Michael Hayes. That was good. <laughs> right on. I like I liked early '80s, Michael Hayes. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Um. So I anyway, not a lot of Georgia, only, but oh, there's we'll there's on. there's plenty of Georgia. There's plenty of Georgia. You just got to know where to look. <laughs> uh, last note on Saturday night is: Does the role going to come there? Be going to be the new announcer? I'm going to talk about all the clubbering, if you will. You know what clubbering is, Steve? That's when you put four fifths on a man. That's two guys, four fifths of, if you will, clubbering a man down. <laughs> it's like Dusty is alive with us. Alive and well, baby. We got an ultimate warrior suck up. You can put milk in it, juices, whatever you want. <laughs> Sorry, guys. It's a WrestleMania <laughs> 6 Coliseum video. <laughs> <laughs> He celebrated his birthday. Seventy. He'd been what seventy-five, I think it was. Uh, I, 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 yeah, love you, Bebeth. Thank you for all the years of entertainment. And after that awesome uh, attack at the beach, Kevin Sullivan attacking Randy Savage at the beach, Baywatch Beach. We uh, they they have a match here on TV, and Zodiac randomly comes out to ringside at the beginning of the match, and Sullivan seems kind of confused with him, kind of trying to send Zodiac away. So this may be some of the beginning of the hints of the random unexplained or it's explained it just makes absolutely no sense baby face turner brutus beefcake here in the next month or two months or whatever the hell it is but kevin sullivan over randy savage here under disqualification when savage goes nuts he throws zodiac into the ring he tosses the referee randy anderson down anderson calls for the bell uh sloppy match i think in another era randy savage and kevin sullivan would have been intense and fun in the right territory and in the right in the right era but uh, here in 95, not so much. But Sullivan gets the win with the DQ, and Savage tosses the referee down. Savage drops Zodiac onto the mat. He slams Sullivan on top of him. He goes up for the elbow drop, drops it on both of them, but Sullivan moves. Savage winds up only hitting, connecting the elbow with Zodiac, and according to Meltzer, Savage injures the collarbone of Beefcake here, and it says Zodiac's going to be out for a little bit. But I know Savage winds up wrestling Zodiac at Halloween Havoc, so I'm not sure if that injury is really as bad as uh, Meltzer claims it was at this point. I didn't see that part in the in the Observer, but that's interesting. I thought it looked clean. 
I actually read the Observer before I watched this match, so I, I looked intently at this move, and it just looked like a normal elbow drop to me. I'm not saying things can't look normal and, and an injury can happen. I'm just saying that I know Zodiac's back around here in, in, in a few weeks' time, so it may not be as bad as Meltzer let on at this point. Directly after the match, though, the Giant comes rushing down to the ring, choke slam Savage multiple times. We get job guys starting to run, and Frankie Lancaster's out there. Mark Starr's out there. They're taking choke slams from the Giant. Alex Wright comes out, leaps off the top rope right into, I'm not really sure what the hell it was, a, a spine buster, an attempted choke slam. Something, but anyways, uh, Giant drives Alex Wright into the mat. And he's just destroying everyone in sight. And here comes Lex Luger out to the ring. And Savage is laying there prone. And there's already discussion of if Lex Luger's part of the Dungeon of Doom. Luger comes in the ring and Kevin Sullivan's laughing. And Luger stands over top of Randy Savage. But he doesn't have an opportunity to do anything because the Giant attacks Luger as well. Choke slams Luger to the mat. So we really don't know what the hell's going on here with Luger. Well, first thing I want to say about this is uh, when Alex Wright came out, Eric Bischoff, I don't know if you picked up on this, but Bischoff says it's Luger. Uh, here comes Luger. And uh, he kind of just basically spoiled what was going to happen. Right. Um, no, I didn't, he, I didn't catch that. Right, Luger. Yeah, I didn't um, catch that. But yeah, uh, I thought this was, this was really good because it, it kind of just continues that storyline because Savage has been accusing Luger of being in the dungeon. If he's in the dungeon, why would the giant beat him up? So uh, it's a good way to even play it up even more so. Okay, maybe they just beat up Luger just to show that he's not in the dungeon, even though he is in the dungeon. I think one of the announcers pick up on that. So he's basically showing that, you know what, Savage, you're full of shit. I'm not in the dungeon. I have nothing to do with this. He beat me up too. So I really enjoyed this. I enjoyed all of it. I enjoyed the whole segment. Yeah, the guessing game continues with Lex Luger, and I remember just week to week being confused as hell, even when he actually does eventually align himself with who he aligns himself with. I still couldn't figure out what the hell was actually going on with all of that week to week. So, it's uh, yeah, it's intriguing what's going on with Lex Luger right now. And as far as go back and you mentioned about Bischoff spoiling Luger coming out by, by calling Alex Wright Luger because he was expecting Luger, that's why it's good for your announcers not to know everything that's about to happen on a show. Unfortunately, Bischoff's the one that's in charge of the show, so he does know what's going on, and basically he's already foreshadowing things, and he's going to have to try to pull back from doing that in the future. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. We're going we're gonna to close the show with probably the lamest main event in uh, – Nitro history. Well, I can't say Nitro history because there's 99, 2000, 2001, but certainly probably in the early years of Nitro, it's Ming versus Lex Luger in the main event of the program. And Luger's still laying there after the commercial break. He's still selling the Giants choke slam. So Ming comes rushing out to the ring and probably the fastest speed I've ever seen Haku travel. But uh, it's it's basically the Ming show. Haku works a ton of rest holds. Ground and pound, just a lot of punching and kicking on Luger. Luger gets a bunch of hope spots in in between, but basically it's it's a nothing match. It's just Haku or Ming, whatever, dominating Luger for the majority of the match. Luger gets in a few shots here and there. Ming pulls the golden spike out, jabs it into Luger for the finish, gets the win after hitting him with the foreign object, and the, the entire match goes 6 minutes and 47 seconds. And this is the kind of match that, you could have gotten away with making three minutes based on the story you're telling with Luger already taken out from the choke slam and, and given that time, that precious time to some other matches on the show instead. But this match goes damn near seven minutes, which is one of the longer matches over the course of the last couple of weeks on nitro. 
Yeah, it didn't make a lot of sense to me. Uh, Ming should have just came out and dominated Luger and just finished it. I mean, Giant did all the work. Just go in there and finish it off. It's not going to hurt Luger. Everybody's going to see that he got beat up by the Giant beforehand. I think he took a couple choke slams. So why would you come out and immediately go for like a, a side headlock or a side chin lock or, or whatever, you know, a rest hold and drag this shit out for seven minutes when the damage is already done? Yeah. Why did you have to do a gimmick with the spike and things like that? Just come out, do a thrust kick, do, do whatever the hell it is your finisher is at this point and finish it. I'm with you, man. This should have spread out the time. I just, I couldn't believe, I couldn't believe after giving away Hogan matches, Hogan versus Luger, even Hogan versus Bubba, giving away Sting versus Flair, Flair versus Pillman. All these weeks they're giving all these matches away and they finally take on Raw head to head. For the first time, Raw's live, so Bischoff has no idea what they're going up against. He has no idea what Vince is going to throw into the ring against them. And so of all the weeks, I figured this would be the week where you really want to up your game and put some some quality product out there. And after having a lackluster last week's episode, I was really hoping they would recover here. But then they close with Luger versus Ming, which doesn't even sound very tantalizing to begin with on paper, but then the, the entire story is Luger's already injured, so he really doesn't even do a whole lot here. So not a very good match, not a good main event, and I can't believe they put this on against a live Raw. Yeah, I'm with you 100% there. You kind of knew what you, like you said, you knew what you was going against up, uh, going up against all, all the other weeks, and you loaded those shows up. So what makes you think WWF's going to do anything different than what they've been doing? Yeah, it's their first live show, but at the same time, you just can't flip a, a, a promotion on its head just because you're having one live head-to-head show with, with some uh, talent. So it, it didn't make any sense to me. You, I figured you had a pre-tape Hogan promo, Savage with an interview. Sting wasn't even on this show. And this was your first live head-to-head, and you start with Alex Wright and Disco, then you go Kurosawa, Craig Pittman. It's completely backwards from what they've been doing. Yeah, and it didn't make any sense it's at all. so funny to watch the first couple of weeks of Nitro. Uh, they were introducing all of these new talents. They were doing all these big matches. And I'm, you can't do that every week. You can't introduce new talent forever. You can't have a gigantic main event every week. You're, otherwise, you're going to play everything out and there's nothing for pay-per-view. Especially, you know, if, if, if you give us finishes. So I, I get all that. But uh, it's just the wrong week not to do any of that. And I wonder if they've already blown all their, uh, had all their eggs in one basket here with all of the uh, new, new guys coming in because it seemed like they introduced like five new guys on the first Nitro. Mm-hmm. And we've seen nothing last week or this week. And I know Eddie's coming and Dean's coming and things like that. So not such a big deal, but it just, I don't know. It just seems weird. So underwhelming. Yeah. And we do learn next week that it's. And it seems like they would have say they would use this for this week's Nitro. It's Luger versus Savage next week, and Hulk Hogan returns to the show. And you can't really control when Hogan's going to be there. He's going to tell you when he can be there, brother. So I'm not really upset that Hogan didn't appear on this episode. But it seems like they could have done Luger and Savage here at the very least. But it is what it is, and we'll see what happens on next week's episode as we move into. Oh no, wait! I forgot to ask you. Uh, another lackluster Nitro for me, but what was your favorite segment on the show? I'm going to have to go with Macho Man and Kevin Sullivan. I thought it did a good job of getting the feud over with Luger and Macho, and I'm intrigued by that storyline right now. Uh, I went with that. I'm actually going to really, everybody's going to scratch their head on this, because what I'm doing, I'm not telling you guys what should be the 
segment of the night, the match of the night. I'm I'm not I'm also not going to pick what should be looked at from other people as what I should be picking. Like, uh, well, this is these are the top two guys, so you should pick this match as the segment of the night because of the names involved. This is about what I enjoyed most. That's all I'm doing here. I've made that decision already as we kick off the Monday uh, Monday Warfare show because I don't want to pick Flair versus whoever every week if I didn't care for the Flair match it's just because Flair's in it or because it sets something up in the future. I'm picking what I enjoyed most, and I think that you hit the nail on the head there as far as uh, you know what the Savage and, and Sullivan match did. So I've, I'm on board with your decision. It's not it's not my choice, but I get why you picked what you picked. I think for uh, just a brief period of a segment, I really enjoyed watching Giant just choke slam the hell out of everybody. I remember when that happened live. Like I still remember that. Like it was just cool. This dude's just murdering. He's nine one oneing everybody basically. Uh, right, but pretty much. Honestly, my favorite thing on the show was Pittman versus Kurosawa. It was just different. I liked the Japanese style. I liked Pittman's amateur style there. It was just different, and I enjoyed it. And that was, like, my favorite thing. If I had to go back and watch one thing on the show, that's what I would go back and watch. And that's basically how I'm looking at this. I'm not looking at it from a main eventer standpoint. Well, the Giants work in Hogan in the main event, so that's more impactful than Pittman and Kurosawa. From a storyline standpoint, absolutely. But I'm just telling you what I enjoyed the most. And for me, I think it was the Kurosawa match. Although close second is watching the giant just murder everyone. If you're you're talking just what was entertaining, I'm with you. Like, I I really liked that Kurosawa match. He was different. And I like how Bischoff, even though it happened quite a while beforehand, he really pushed uh, Hawk getting his arm broke by Kurosawa to get him over. Yeah. Um, That was that was cool. But, yeah, I'm with you, man. It was a fun, entertaining match, and that's all that matters, really. I'm just really intrigued. I've always been intrigued by this Luger triangle storyline here with Savage and Sting that really never gets a payoff because somehow they drag this on and on and on until next July and get no payoff, and it kind yeah. of gets dropped with the NWO. So uh, that that's disappointing, and I don't want to give away too many spoilers, but everybody knows this by now. I really enjoy it because I was always intrigued on where they were going to go with it. And we're going to go to Monday Night Raw. It's the first live Raw up against Nitro. They're in Grand Rapids, Michigan. It's the night after In Your House, which took place in Detroit. So they're still in Michigan here, uh, September 25th. And uh, quick results from In Your House. It's uh, Savio Vega going over Waylon Mercy with the uh, spin kick. I think that may have been Mercy's last match or at least one of his last matches, and he looked pretty rough in that match. I remember watching it, and every time he hit the ropes, it looked like he was in just in pain trying to trying to run the ropes. And I know the story goes is that he wanted the job real bad, so he kind of kept all of his injuries under the rug. And, and then, But once he got the job, it became obvious, even though the gimmick was great, that he just absolutely could not physically hack it. So unfortunately, as we begin this Monday Night War here, we're not going to get a whole lot of uh, Mr. Howdy Duty. So this one's for you, Waylon Mercy. Hey, Blaze, a little Howdy Duty on your coconut. So back to in your house results. Savio Vega over Waylon Mercy. It was a bad match. Went about seven minutes. Sid over Henry Godwin. Another bad match with a power bomb. Seven minutes, 23 seconds. Bulldog over Bam Bam Bigelow in 12 minutes with a power slam. Another bad match. Three matches in a row, none of them good. Very boring, very just not good uh, from what I remember on that pay-per-view. Then we go to the Dean Douglas match, and, and for some reason he's managed by Bob Backlund at the In Your House pay-per-view. 
and Dean gets the win here over Razor in about 15 minutes. Uh, Razor basically uh, nails the Razor's edge, but Bob Backlund distracts the referee. It allows the one, two, three kid to come down and make the count. Uh, Razor gets up and realizes it wasn't the referee who made the county flings the kid to the side. And that's when <laughs> Dean Douglas and, and that bump is tremendous by the way. Yes. <laughs> when, when he oh, tosses God. the kid, the kid does a Superman dive to the floor. Um, and Dean, Dean Douglas basically cradles Razor and steals the win. That was the first match in the entire show to crack two stars, according according to the Melts. So that's how bad this show was. Um, but, yeah, I didn't understand the whole Backlund thing. With I think they just decided they needed somebody at ringside, and Bob Backlund wasn't doing anything because he doesn't continue to associate with Douglas. So it was just a weird situation there. And here's the match. It was Bret Hart taking on the feet here on this pay-per-view. Yeah. Uh, Bret gets the win over... Jean-Pierre Lafitte in nearly 17 minutes with a sharpshooter, and I, I think that was the match of the night, if I remember correctly. And based on looking at the results of the rest of this show, there's no doubt it was the match of the night. Solid oh match. Oh, my Brett, God, I love that match. Brett love did, that match. Brett did a great job in 95 working the guys that were not really getting pushes, Hakushi, Lafitte, and having great matches with them. Yeah, that's one of my favorite Brett matches. It's kind of weird because it's Lafitte, and it really has no purpose other than yeah, no significance, getting Lafitte right. a match. But yeah, Brett and Lafitte was awesome. So they did an angle during this in your house pay-per-view where Owen Hart was late to the arena. He wasn't there. And they needed to find a replacement for Owen in the triple header match. So naturally, Cornette goes and gets the Bulldog, whom he also manages. So Cornette's managing the Bulldog, so naturally it seems obvious that he goes and gets the Bulldog to replace Owen. And we get the Bulldog and Yokozuna defending the tag titles against Diesel and Shawn Michaels and their, their singles belts. What it winds up happening is Owen comes running in at the end of the match and dives into the ring and immediately gets jackknifed and pinned by Diesel. And thus Diesel and Sean win the World Tag Team titles. However, we learn here at the beginning of Raw that Jim Cornette has hired a lawyer by the name of Clarence Mason, who is a ripoff of a real attorney named Clarence Thomas at the time. And they have a meeting with Gorilla Monsoon, and basically they say that Bulldog was made the legal man in that match. And so Owen running in should have been null and void. And Owen was not a participant in the match. So the pinfall never counted. And thus the titles are returned to Yokozuna and Owen Hart. So you feel really feel gypped if you ordered that pay-per-view. And that was the reason you ordered it was for that main event match. And you turn around here on raw and the belts are given back to Yokozuna and Owen Hart. Yeah, I agree with you there. The idea on paper is really cool, but you pigeonhole yourself because Unless you use it as a creative way to like drop the IC title or something like that, it's not going to work because if you put the tag straps on these guys, who's going to do the job to lose them back? And who's going to beat them? I mean, there's really nobody on the roster that's even close to Sean and Diesel together, not even Yoko and Owen and them guys. So there's really no teams that can match up with them. So they had to do something. And they got a little creative. But yeah, if I would have paid for that, thank God it was an in-your-house and not like a SummerSlam or Survivor Series, we had to pay full price. Right. And, uh, you know, we learned that uh, Gorilla Monsoon forces Yoko and Owen to defend the belts here tonight on Raw against the Smoking Guns, supposedly because the match had already been scheduled. So my question is, if Diesel and Sean got screwed, why wasn't why weren't they given this return match here on Raw instead of the Smoking Guns? Didn't really care for that little plot hole. But whatever. It's the WWF. They're not perfect. And... uh at least we were promised a, a world tag team title match. I did like that. I did like that after Gorilla Monsoon was made a fool of that he got them right back. 
instead of making Gorilla just look like a complete idiot. Uh, Gorilla said, "Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I'll give it back to him, and th- and then they're going to go out there and they're they're going to defend tonight." So that was the uh, it was kind of okay. I thought that was all right. Um, I didn't really necessarily like that it was against the smoking guns, but eh, whatever. Take what you can get. So we kick off the show, and it's Skip the the Body Donnas are in the ring. Skip and Sonny, and we learn, according to Vince McMahon, that Marty Jannetty is making his return for like the forty sixth time to the WWF. Let's see how long he stays this time. I think he stays through Survivor Series 96 here uh, in this run. Uh, but Jannetty comes out. Uh, he's wearing a, a wife beater or a tank top or something along those lines. I think he's put on a few extra pounds <laughs> uh, in his time away from the WWF here. So Jannetty makes like, you know, his 409th return here. He's coming out. And I remember this like like it was, you know, a few months ago, man. I just, I marked out. I was a huge Jannetty fan. And so every time he came back, <laughs> I marked out. So it was kind of cool that Jannetty left as many times as he did because he came back that many times. So I got to mark out that many different times, uh, whether it was uh, coming out of the crowd and Sean looking in the mirror or this right here. So all these different times Jannetty makes his comeback and here he is again in his final real run with the WWF. Honest to God, I think this is his final real run, last run with the WWF. But he gets the win here over Skip with the rocker dropper and a flying fist drop in about 10 minutes. It was a good little solid match. They were given a lot of time. So even though Raw's got an hour, just like Nitro, these matches do end up going a lot longer. There's a lot, little, lot less uh, dog and pony nonsense in between the matches here. What would you think of the match? I thought it was good. Uh, Skip's a damn good wrestler, very entertaining. Marty was always good. He had his moveset, but his moveset, even in 95, was still new and fresh for uh, the WWF at the time. So seeing him come back was definitely always entertaining. He never disappointed, really, as far as in-ring work goes. I enjoyed it. It was a pretty – it was it's better than Disco and Alex Wright, for sure. Yeah, and I was trying to grab screen caps of some of the action here on these Nitros and Raws as I was reviewing them, and uh, I happened to get a couple of screen caps of Gennetti after the match, and I noticed – the, the dude was visibly gassed, very blown up. Uh, he was sucking wind and covered in sweat. So Janetti wasn't completely back into ring shape here just yet, but uh, I'm sure that would change here over the course of the next few weeks. But I thought it was a solid match. Like you said, certainly better than, than Alex Wright and Disco Inferno here if they're going head-to-head. At this point, we go back again. We see more highlights earlier today of the meeting between Gorilla Monsoon, Jim Cornette, and Clarence Mason. So... Nothing, but we already really discussed that. So we'll move into the next match, which is the match that that set up the world tag team title match between Yokozuna and Owen Hart, the champions and the smoking guns. And right away, high praise. Billy Gunn has shaved that mustache off his face. Positive note. Number one, right there. And so we see uh Sean and diesel watching this match on a monitor from backstage. So I'm kind of wondering at that, at that point, I'm wondering, Oh, are they going to challenge the winners here? That was kind of cool. Uh, good stuff with the guns and Owen early, obviously, uh, especially Billy Gunn and Owen. Just uh, really good stuff. Yoko and Owen wind up getting heat on Billy Gunn. Billy does finally make the hot tag to Bart. Winds up into a four-way melee. Everybody's just beating the hell out of everybody every which way. Guns whip, uh, double Irish whip Owen into Yoko. Owen goes bouncing off of Yoko's body. Owen or Yoko tumbles back into the corner. I thought that was a, a cool spot. Guns wind up hitting the sidewinder on Owen Hart. Bart goes for the cover. But the ref's busy with Billy Gunn, so there's no count. Yoko tries to run over and splash Bart, but Bart moves, and Yoko winds up splashing his own partner. Yoko splashes Owen. 
Billy dropkicks or tries to dropkick Yoko out of the ring, barely connects, but Yoko actually takes a big dive through the ropes to the floor for Billy anyway. So I thought that was really cool of him. And uh, Bart makes, basically makes the cover on Owen, who has now taken the sidewinder and a splash from Yokozuna. And the Smoking Guns are your new World Tag Team Champions here in 12 minutes and 16 seconds. Uh, yeah, this is a really, really entertaining match. Again, they, they were hiding Yoko. I think they realized Yoko's days were done. They had to get the belt off Owen and, and him because Yoko is just not going to work. Not in this point anyway. And I think uh, this is the start of them separating. Yeah, an entertaining match. I thought Billy Gunn had some awesome drop kicks at this point. He did a nice bulldog. There's some good good action. This is a, a pretty good uh, tag team title match here. Yeah, and I was never sold on the Guns being the elite tag team in the WWF. And I'm just going to list some WWF teams because that's what we're talking about here. I grew up on the Hart Foundation, Demolition, uh, later on Legion of Doom, these big teams or, or, or great wrestling teams like the Hearts, like I mentioned. So I just never saw the Guns as anything more than like a mid-card tag team, like a Rougeau Brothers, and that's not knocking the Rougeaus because their heel gimmick was awesome. But I just meant push-wise. I never really saw them as anything more than that. And given the division at the time, though, in 95 and in 96, it's sad to say this was the best they had. The Smoking Guns were the best tag team. I just still couldn't buy them as anything superior like I did you know, with, with the other teams that we grew up on. And I'm not knocking their talent. I enjoyed this match. And I thought, you know, specifically Billy was uh, very talented at this point in his career, but Bart was good too. I just didn't buy two cowboys in jeans with a lack of personality as the next coming of the Rockers or the British Bulldogs. Just I don't know. It's just tag team wrestling in general in the WWF had really taken a nosedive here by the mid-90s. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think the the cowboy gimmick is what hurt them. If they had a different gimmick, I, I could see them being a lot better. It's just when you're a cowboy, it's just you're pigeonholed. You're kind of stuck in that where you got to do the cowboy promo and and your little guns, your cap guns going off, and your cowboy hats and your your dusters and things like that to where you're kind of stuck there. Whereas the hearts were the hearts; they could have took that wherever they wanted. The bulldogs could do the same thing. They're not stuck in a gimmick they're themselves just with a name so to speak whereas these guys they have to play that cowboy gimmick and i think that hindered them a little bit the talents there it's just the gimmick wasn't very good yeah i mean they kind of put themselves in that position doing that gimmick on the indies prior to the wwf kip winchester and brett colt you know winchester and colt clever names uh wound up being billy and bart gunn here and then we get Sean and Diesel coming out to congratulate the Smoking Guns. And why would you do that? Wouldn't you be pissed off that you just had the world tag team titles stripped from you? It's almost like they, they, they were treating the tag titles like they were, they were junk. And it was like, oh, that's all right. You guys have it. That's cool. We're happy for you then. It's just like they had no interest in ever. Yeah, they, they, they had no interest in ever trying to get a rematch or acquiring the tag team titles. So I, I don't know. I just. I thought it didn't make sense from a logistics standpoint that they just won the tag titles last night. They had them taken from them today. And then they go out and watch a different team win those titles. I just, I don't know why they would be happy about that. I don't get it either, but at the same time, they realized like they didn't need the tag titles. This wasn't mid 94. Again, they just booked themselves into a corner with that match all or nothing or, or whatever they called it. And, um, they had to do something to get out of it, and I think they understood that on the not not in reality, but on the on the inside, that's kind of what they were going for there. 
And I thought it was a nice way to give them a rub. Yeah, we we should have them, but we didn't pin the right guy. Whatever. We got bigger fish to fry. Congratulations. I'm glad you're the tag champs. Time to get the hell out of here. They air a promo uh, for next week. Uh, Bret Hart's going to be taking on Jean-Pierre Lafitte in a rematch live on Raw, So, or at least on Raw. I don't know about being live, but they're going to have a rematch from In Your House next week on pay-per-view. So I'm looking forward to watching that one, Steve. Um, and then we... We wind up with Doc Hendricks. I'm standing in the aisle here with Gorilla Monsoon. And Michael Hayes interviews Gorilla here. And basically, Gorilla comes out just to announce a bunch of matches for the next In Your House pay-per-view. We learn that Davey Boy Smith will challenge Diesel for the world title. Dean Douglas takes on Shawn Michaels for the Intercontinental title. And it will be the debut of Goldust. So it's uh, kind of a, they're already setting up a pretty solid card on paper, mind you. Let's not forget that the Goldust match is pretty pretty much abysmal and that the Davey versus Diesel match is what Jim Cornette calls the worst match he ever participated in in his entire career. And then also the Shawn Michaels and Dean Douglas match doesn't even take place because of what happens with, with Shawn Michaels and those uh, thugs that ranged anywhere from one to 406 guys uh, based on whoever was telling the story. That's the lineup for right now anyway. Looks good on paper, Steve. Yeah, it does. I'm intrigued. We close the show, main event, another big match. So we, we, you know, we've already done Marty Jannetty returns, which is a really very cool way to kick off your show. Uh, familiar face has been with the company for several years, going back to 1988. Then we go on to a world tag team title match with a, the title changes hands. And now we're closing the show with two top names. The Undertaker, who we haven't really seen a whole lot of in the last few weeks, taking on the British Bulldog. And the Bulldog, this is his second big-time match here since we've been covering Monday Warfare because he took on Razor Ramon just a couple weeks ago or whatever it was, and now here he is again, and it's The Undertaker in the main event. So what did you think of the Bulldog and how he held his own here with The Undertaker this week? Do you think the Bulldog's improving as a heel, or does he need more work? Did you enjoy the match? I'm, I'm curious your take here on this matchup. Uh, I really enjoyed the match. I thought it was really good. How long did you say they went? 12 minutes, I think it was. Something like, oh, eight minutes. Um, it, it seemed like the action never stopped. They were they were uh, constantly going at it. And to me, like, Davey Boy, he always had a look that was believable. Just the eye test. He passed the eye test. So seeing him in the ring with The Undertaker, I didn't feel like he was overmatched, uh, you know, whatever the case may be. I felt like he fit in here. I felt like he fit in this the position that he was given at this point. Yeah, I I really did like this this match. I thought it was really good. Yeah, and it was a good good segment of, of moves going on near the end of the match. Uh, the Undertaker counters the the running power slam. He slides behind the Bulldog, uh, delivers a back suplex for both men to go down. Winds up going for old school, or at this point, I guess it was just school. Nails that. It's it's some back and forth from there, and then the Undertaker finally hits the choke slam on Bulldog, which brings Mabel into the ring for interference and a disqualification. Davy Boy and Mabel. Uh, attack the undertaker and i was okay with the dq match went about seven and a half minutes by the way i was okay with this finish because you we'd just seen a world title change in the match before this so you can get away with a dq finish here and it doesn't really upset you as a viewer so uh, it was a really well booked show from beginning to end you know a surprise return a world title change and then, you know, two big names highlight the main event here. Even if it's a disqualification finish, it's a match you've never seen before. You've never seen The Undertaker and the British Bulldog in the ring at this level. So basically what happens is The Undertaker starts getting beaten on, men on a mission. Davy Boy Smith 
They're all attacking the Undertaker. Sean and Diesel rush out to make the save. So we kind of have uh, even Steven there. Uh, six-man brawl going on when Yokozuna and Owen Hart wind up showing up. And now we got five heels out there and only uh, one, two, three baby faces. So the smoking guns come back out and, and to even the odds. And so we have like a, a 10-man stare down. And unfortunately, there wasn't a payoff because I kind of like that. It kind of looked like it was building up to maybe a, a 10-man tag. And we don't really get to see that, but I, I thought that was kind of a cool way to close the show. Yeah, I thought so, too. I think the guns are in the process of taking a shower or something. They had to hurry up and get their pants back on or something because they are like, soap and everything all over them. But, yeah, it looked cool. It almost looked like they were starting to build towards Survivor Series a little bit. And I, and I know they do somewhat with some of these matches. I know Mabel and uh, those guys end up with The Undertaker. But uh, that would have been one hell of a match, Undertaker and uh, Diesel and Sean versus in the guns against Owen, Yoko, Mabel, and Bulldog. Mo in there, I guess. Yeah, uh, throw Mo in there, or, or whoever doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, but uh, it was pretty entertaining. It was a cool visual, like you said, and it was a nice way to end the show. I thought they did a good job on their first live show, head to head with Nitro. So Raw has a match that goes ten minutes, then a match that goes twelve minutes and fifteen seconds, then a match here that does seven and a half minutes. Every one of these matches were longer than in any match on Nitro. Uh, Nitro's average match seems to go anywhere between five six minutes. So. Yeah, I never thought I'd see the day that the WWF would have more wrestling content on their show than, than WCW. But here we are uh, in the world of the Monday Night War, and Vince put on a hell of a show tonight. He really came guns a-blazing here on this live episode. And the show closes. Seems like because they're live, they almost run out of things to do early. So we come back from commercial, and we've got Diesel and Sean basically posing in the ring, and they're killing time. and. They're throwing T-shirts, and Vince and Lawler seem to be talking just like they're filling time for absolutely no real reason, and then the show ends right there. And that's basically the way we close the show. I just thought Raw overall from top to bottom just killed Nitro this week. So if we're picking a show, I, I say I, I say Raw wins here, uh, hands down, hands down. Uh, for September 25th, no doubt about it. I will say uh, there's a couple things that happened on that commentary at the end. DiBiase, or not DiBiase, Lawler says that the one, two, three kid has been negotiating with Teddy DiBiase. He kind of mentioned that. And mm-hmm. I know that plays into an angle coming forward, coming up. And then they run through the car for next week's show. The one thing that was weird, Vince was dancing with Sean on the announce table, man. I don't know what the hell it was. I think I mentioned this <laughs> last episode. But man, this dude had a massive. Man crush. Insert whatever. Yeah, whatever the hell you want to put in there on Sean. And I, I don't understand it. I don't get it. It's definitely weird because I've never seen Vince act that way towards any other wrestler. Now, Gorilla, on the other hand, maybe have done it for Hogan back in the early late 80s, early 90s or whatever during the Hulkmania era. But I if, I ever, saw, if I ever saw if I ever saw Gorilla dance with Hulk Hogan, I, I, I might have lost my mind. <laughs> That would have been. I mean, not necessarily the dancing, but man, the the way he put over Hogan as the greatest athlete in the world, that sort of stuff, he really hammered at home. He did his job. But Vince with Sean is completely opposite of that. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a different world. Weird. It's a different animal completely, the way Vince uh, fawned over Shawn Michaels there in the mid-90s uh, especially. It was uh, downright uncomfortable it makes you at wonder times. If that's, yeah, absolutely. It almost makes you wonder if that's what Vince always wanted to be with somebody like Shawn Michaels. Well, it's possible telling. he grew up wanting to be one of the Grams. You know, the story goes that he, you know, used to ride with the Jerry Graham. No, was it Jerry? Graham? Yeah, Jerry Graham. Vince's dad was not happy with that because the Grams lived fast, and uh, <laughs> specifically Jerry Graham. And uh, so that was Vince's idol growing up, were the Grams, and specifically Doctor Jerry Graham. 
And there was even a story of Vince using peroxide to bleach his hair. And I don't think it turned out right at one point, trying to be like the Grams uh, at a young age. And he would, uh, as, as a teenager, he would ride along with Jerry Graham in a convertible and things like that. So, yeah, I think Vince always wanted to be that outlandish. Well, Sean's not a heel here, but you get what I mean, that cocky, yeah. charismatic yeah. character that the, the Grams were. But, yeah, so anyways... uh. Segment of the night, Steve. I mean, take your pick. Janetti's return, solid match there. World tag team title change, and the Undertaker versus Davy Boy. Just two huge names going at it. Which who you picking? Uh, I I went with Undertaker and Bulldog, but I'm with you, man. There is nothing wrong at all with this show. You you see Marty Janetti versus Skip, and people are probably like, "What the hell is that's trash?" It's not. It's, it's a really good opener. Uh, Marty Janetti worked his ass off. Skip is a hell of a performer. Uh, he doesn't get nearly the credit he deserves as a talent. He, he's tremendous. Um, he had a tag title change and a decent match that made sense compared to the tag title change that we had on Nitro the week before. And then, of course, Undertaker and Bulldog for the first time in that sort of position. Just all around a tremendous show. I really enjoyed Raw. It didn't feel like it was slow and plotting like some of these other ones that we watched. Yeah, it was very up-tempo the entire hour. Very good from, from uh, beginning to end. Um, it's hard for me to pick a uh, segment of the night, only because I up until today I probably would have always picked the Marty Jannetty match, only because I vividly remember it uh, from being a teenager. I remember being excited when he was announced and coming back out and returning to the WWE. It was a huge deal for me. I was a Marty Jannetty mark. So it was a huge deal. And up until today, I, I think I would have always have told you that would have been easily hands down my favorite segment on the show. But I think as I sat here and watched this play out again, this whole world tag team title situation, and even though I don't like the guns as the elite tag team, I think just the overall, everything about that story, uh, if, if you want to call it that, from the overturning the, the decision to overturn the championship back to Yoko and Owen to making them forced to come out here and wrestle this match, giving us this match on free TV, the match getting plenty enough time to do what it needed to do. Owen and his exceptional work out here with, with the guns and then getting a finish and getting a title change. I, I think all of that all together, I kind of got to lean towards that now. And it's, it's a slight lean because I'm still big on the Genetti return, but I got to go with the world tag team title match here. And uh, we're going to take a look, real quick look at the ratings. Raw wins this week, hands down. Raw gets a 2.7 rating. Nitro, a 1.9. Raw beats Nitro by nearly an entire point this week, and they deserved it with what they put on versus what Nitro put on, Steve. This hands down the better show. I think it's probably one of the better shows that we've watched out of all eight or nine that we've watched so far. Wow, it's been that many. Seven yeah. shows. Oh no, yeah, seven shows. It didn't, it felt, it didn't feel like that many. Um, <laughs> I, I thought this was the best show overall that we've watched outside of maybe the first Nitro. But you can kind of throw the first Nitro out because you know that's going to be a good show. You have to have a good show for that, or you're screwed. So as an actual, uh, we're going, we're in the flow now. We're getting started. I felt like this is one of the better shows that we've watched so far, and it, it was very entertaining. Yeah, good call there. I mean, if you want to throw that first Nitro out the window because, I mean, it was the debut episode, uh, this episode of Raw by far was the best thing uh, that we've covered so far, in my opinion, anyway. Just uh, the whole show was solid. So good job by uh, Vince this week. We'll see We'll see if they can keep that up uh, next week, and we'll see if uh, Bischoff comes back and punches Vince in the mouth 
in the ratings or, or at least in the content they put on Nitro next week to try and rebut this uh, big swing in the uh, ratings this week and a big swing in the action this week. Raw just dominated Nitro, and there's no doubt that Bischoff's going to know this. He's got to be all over this when this is over. So curious to see how everything plays out next week on both shows. Yeah, me too. Uh, Vince has to keep it up, and Bischoff has to go back to the drawing board a little bit. Definitely interested to see how we go, see how it goes. And uh, that'll wrap up this week's episode of Monday Warfare, The Battles Within. We'll be back again next time with two more weeks of Raw, two more weeks of Nitro, and uh, it's going to be fun to see where we go from here because we're leading into the next in your house pay-per-view, which, uh, like they said, was that's the Great White North pay-per-view. And then uh, also... Halloween Havoc's coming up here in the month of October. So going to be very fun to see how we build to both of those pay-per-views. Maybe not so much the machine versus machine match, but pretty much everything else. So I look forward to all that, Steve. And I look forward to having you back here with me again next time as we head into the month of October in the Monday Night War. I can't wait, man. One of my favorite segments of all time is coming up, and I can't wait to talk about it because I'm sure we're going to have a different opinion on it. (laughs) Well, I look forward to discussing that hopefully next time or whenever that may be. Uh, I'm sure it'll be coming up soon, though. And we hope you guys are back next time, too. Like I said, we're moving on to Episode 3. We're going to start tackling the month of October 1995. This has been Ray and Steve here as part of Monday Warfare, The Battles Within. It's